The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Hebrews 1.14, New Living Translation Bible. I think it's pretty safe to say when most of us think of angels, whether or not you actually believe in them, we see them as symbols of peace and protection. I personally have never heard of anyone trying to use them to justify vile, criminal, and objectively morally repugnant actions. At least I hadn't heard of that before I'd heard about scumbag Daniel Perez. Cult leaders tend to twist religious symbols and scripture to fit their own horrific narratives to serve their own selfish and dark motives. And Daniel Perez, leader of a very small cult known as the Angels Landing Cult, was no exception. He twisted things further than most. Daniel Perez is living proof that if you catch the right people at their lowest and most vulnerable points, you can get them to believe damn near anything. Perez comes across as maybe the laziest cult leader we've covered so far, the least spiritually invested. He seems to have spent the least amount of time studying religious teachings, and for his laziness, he was rewarded with over 10 years of easy living. He clearly didn't put a lot of thought into his cult leader theology, and I guess he didn't have to to get what he wanted. He didn't write any book, no David Berg, Child of God type newsletters. He didn't spin out of an existing church and poach former members like David Koresh. He didn't come up with any crazy, but at least somewhat thought out prophecies like Yahweh ben Yahweh. No complex theology or ideology, no follower hierarchy. Didn't predict the world was going to end soon like so many cult leaders or that he was God or Jesus reincarnated or God's one chosen prophet or any of that. Dude just said some real, real crazy shit centering around him knowing more than the rest of us and having heavenly powers the rest of us don't have and a few people with minds far too open to unprovable beliefs, a few people with far too much faith in celestial possibilities. They bought whatever he was selling and that was enough to allow him to live the terrible life he wanted to live. Some of those chosen few sadly brought their families into his cruel insanity. And then several of them gave up their lives so he and the other followers could live off the money he made through their deaths via his crazy life insurance scam that actually worked far, far too many times. Daniel Perez is a still living reminder of how dangerous it can be to dedicate your life to some wackadoodle who claims they can do things or know things that they just can't prove. 
just don't ever prove. Daniel Perez is a reminder for us to be skeptical of the claims of others. He's a reminder to be real careful of who you trust. Be careful in what or whom you put your faith in. Trusting the wrong person, putting your faith in the wrong belief system can get you killed. It does get people killed. And you will have truly died in vain if you follow the teachings of someone like Daniel Perez. Perez claimed to be possessed by three different angels and that those angels made him commit horrific crimes against children, life insurance, fraud, and murder. Followers believe these angels also gave him supernatural powers. And somehow with his angelic claims, with a supposed and vague insight to and link with the Almighty, he was able to manipulate and control a small group of people living just outside of Wichita, Kansas. Before being arrested in April of 2010, Perez got away with pedophilia, murder, life insurance fraud for at least around 15 years. He moved from state to state with a small band of followers and would still be taking followers and talking them into killing them themselves to bankroll his ego-driven insanity today had he not died or been caught. Going to explore as much of these years as we can today. Much of Perez's life is somewhat of a mystery. Despite the fact that he doesn't need to worry about incriminating himself further because he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison, he refuses to open up and discuss what he went to prison for. He will not reveal any additional details. He won't verify claims made about him by numerous former followers. He chooses to live in complete and total denial regarding the very strange life he chose to lead. What a weird tale we have for you today. It reminds me a bit of the Children of Thunder suck, uh, uh, Children of Thunder cult suck from last April, but maybe even weirder. Even Glenn Helzer, as methed out as he was, as crazy as his plan was to take over the Mormon church with an army of militarized orphans, at least he had a big the theological plan. At least he claimed to be super powerful. And then he would take his tiny band of followers with him when he went on to basically rule the world after some giant end times type battle. It was crazy, but at least I can see the incentive to follow him. Stick around and you get to be on the winning side of an apocalyptic war. It's big. He went big. Uh, Perez's plan didn't seem to lead to anything other than some vague notion of, I can probably help you get to heaven or maybe bring you back via reincarnation or something like that. I'm not sure uh, if you kill yourself so I can keep driving sports cars and riding ATVs and getting drunk and sleep with teen girls outside of Wichita. Pretty low rent spiritual goals. Today, we're going to look into everything we can about Perez, who he really was, who he claimed to be, all the lies he told, the girls he abused, the mysterious deaths of various cult members, and how he finally got caught thanks to some excellent law enforcement sleuthing in today's what the shit is going on around here? How could anyone believe this asshole? Cult, cult, cult edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, suck nasty, dog the bounty, hacker, assistant coder, dude who needs to open his eyes a bit more to the dangers of Antifa, guy who lost his voice earlier this week, so if I'm not as loud, it's not because I'm not as excited and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, excited to see what you're wearing this summer, Lucifina. You look fantastic. Praise Mojangles, and it's Yacht Rock season. Michael motherfucking McDonald. Uh, time for me to eat some humble pie real quick before we get into today's ins insanity. Uh, so much feedback came in from the QAnon and Antifa suck, and I, and I really appreciate it. I haven't looked at the YouTube stuff. I'm sure that's a little <laughs> rougher than to avoid the YouTube comments. But uh, I've been looking at the emails, and a lot of it disagreed with uh, my coverage of Antifa, and a lot of uh, of it was really well-written. You know, you fucked up here, Suckmaster, uh, but I still love your constructive criticism. And, and I love that because that's how we learn, through disagreement. That's how we evolve and get better. Much appreciated. Uh, no big pile of fuck you, you idiot emails. Just a lot of, hey, normally like what you do, but ah, I don't think you did it, did it, did it right here. And I will say that attitude made me pay attention a lot more than just, you know, like YouTube kind of based hateful anger. 
I, I realize now that it might have been a mistake to pair Antifa with QAnon. We make decisions on how to approach new topics pretty quick. Sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. Uh, OG sucker, Eric Historic pointed out that a better pairing would have been like the Proud Boys. And that's fair. I uh, wish we would have thought of that sooner. We didn't. Lots of uh, Antifa updates at the end of this suck to try and explain information that I should have originally included. So I apologize. I let myself get too sucked in to the insane sexiness of QAnon. It's just so over the top with its claims. And I did not spend the time that I, I should have really thinking about Antifa, which I found, you know, like I said, boring comparatively. Hard to compete with claims of kid eaters. And, and that's not fair to the topics, not fair to you and to, you know, to what many of you expect from Time Suck. So to make it clear, uh, fuck both the Q truthers and any asshole looters and indiscriminate cop haters who twist Antifa's original intention to fight fascism and become fascists themselves in the name of anti-fascism. And I know that does happen. One thing to go after neo-Nazis, quite another to attack random cops or take over part of Seattle or attack businesses or people wearing MAGA hats just because you don't like them, right? That's not being anti-fascist. That's just mindless, violent rage. So I will address that in the Time Sucker updates. Uh, also, real quick, the U.S. government has recently recognized the Armenian genocide. Lots of messages about that. Uh, I felt it was important to put here uh, about time. And it's going to be interesting to see what the political fallout might be, right? Definitely the more morally the right thing to do. What consequences will come though? Going to be interesting to see how Turkey reacts over the following months. The Turkish government is, of course, furious. And also, as you know, if you heard that episode, completely fucking insane. And that's a rough combo. Uh, thoughts go out to any servicemen and servicewomen currently deployed over in Turkey. Stay safe around uh, some of those crazy fuckers. And these announcements uh, are a wee bit behind the times because I'm trying to stay a week and a half to two weeks ahead on Time Suck, uh, you know, which works out great in instances like it did uh, last last week when I lost my voice. Uh, very cool new tea in the store today at badmagicmerch.com. Another Brent Muir original, a Time Suck Medusa Raglan tea. Love the designs that keep coming. So proud of the Bad Magic store. So weird and fun and different. Uh, Art Warlock Logan Keith redesigned my stand-up site, dancummins.tv. Some of my fall symphony of insanity tour dates are up there. The site looks so crazy. It has me excited to get weird, have fun with new jokes and stories. And last announcement, the most important one. This May, we are donating at least $13,800 to the Ocular Melanoma Foundation in honor of Alex Roach, a time sucker who was taken from his family at the young age of just 33 his widow, Carmen, uh, asked us to donate many months ago, and now we are, in honor of her, quote, strong, talented, and amazing husband. Carmen, we are making the monthly charitable donation here at Bad Magic Productions uh, to Melanoma, or in honor of Melanoma Awareness Month, and in honor of Alex, to the Ocular Melanoma Research Foundation. And we'll do it in Alex's name. Uh, the Ocular Melanoma Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit, one of the leading research and patient support organizations focused on ocular melanoma eye cancer. Uh, to find out more, and please do, go to ocularmelanoma.org. Uh, thanks to all our Patreon supporters for allowing us to make a difference. So sorry for your loss, Carmen. And now on to today's uh, darkness and, you know, uh, macabre fun, at least to learn about. Daniel Perez, a man who made the strange alarming, and how the fuck did he get anyone to believe this decision to blame pedophilia on fake angels, requiring him to hurt kids? A man who convinced his followers it was their time to die so he could use their life insurance payouts to fund his shitty little cult. Uh, he is also weird and different, but not fun. Cult, cult, cult. Let's get into it. Wichita. Just outside of Wichita is where most of today's action will take place. Uh, years after first hearing it, I still think of that 2003 White Stripes song when I hear about Wichita. Right? Seven Nation Army. I'm going to Wichita. 
far from this opera roof forevermore. Uh, Daniel Perez went to Wichita in 1997, and he brought a weird fucking opera with him. Let's learn a little bit about Wichita. Been a while since we've been there. I forgot that Wichita's nickname was once the air capital of the world. And when I first read that for this week's suck, uh, I thought they were bragging about how clean the air was or something. And I thought that was the most pathetic nickname ever. It's like, come to Wichita where the air is clean. And uh, well, there's, you know, there's other stuff too. It's, uh, it's humid as fuck in the summer. So try not to focus on that. Uh, it gets pretty damn cold. In the winter, uh, there's no hills for skiing or really anything, so uh, don't focus on that either. Uh, there aren't really good views. It's it's flat as fuck, to be honest. So don't really come for the for the beautiful vistas. Uh, we got the Arkansas River. It runs through town, but uh, doesn't have any doesn't have any rapids, and it's pretty muddy. So maybe don't come for crystal clean water or water sports. But uh, but Pizza Hut and White Castle started here, so there's plenty of stuffed crust pizza and gut bomb burger like meat things. So that's that's you know could be worse. So, uh, hey, uh, hey, did I mention how clean the fucking air is? Oh, man, the air is so sick, bruh. The best air. It's the air capital of the world. Noise. Uh, that's not what the nickname means. That's just me thinking some dumb shit for no reason other than I'm an idiot. Uh, no, Wichita was once called the air capital of the world because it was once a major hub for airplane manufacturing. Uh, Clyde Cessna started the Cessna Aircraft Corporation in Wichita in 1927. He built his first aircraft, a Cessna Comet in Wichita, 10 years earlier. The long-defunct Swallow Airplane Company, it's a weird name, uh, founded in Wichita in 1920, and two early Swallow employees, Lloyd Stearman and Walter Beach, went on to found Stearman Aircraft in 1926 and Beechcraft in 1932. Boeing bought out Stearman in 1934 and became the city's largest employer. During World War II, Wichita exploded in population when the city became a major manufacturing center for the B-29 bomber used extensively in World War II. The population went up 46.5%. From 1940 to 1950, that's ridiculous in 10 years. Going from 114,966 to 168,279. Ah, I remember gluing together a, a model B-29 bomber when I was a kid. Anyone else get really into model planes? I can still smell that glue. I was terrible at making them. Every plane and car I put together had those like glue fingerprint marks all over them. And yeah, I was a, you know, model, uh, airplane model nerd. I'm kidding. I'm still fucking nerds. Uh, today, Wichita is still a pretty big manufacturing center in the aviation world, just not as big as it used to be, thanks to uh, Boeing ending its operations in Wichita in 2014. Despite that loss, still the largest city in Kansas with a metro area population estimated to be around 650,000. Uh, the city was originally founded back in 1864, trading post at the site of a village of the Wichita American Indian tribe that had only recently returned to the area. They'd left a century earlier due to fighting with the Osage people. Europeans first scoped out the area back in 1541, long time ago, uh, when a Spanish expedition led by explorer Francisco Vasquez de Coronado traveled through searching for the cities of Cibola, uh, a.k.a. the mythical seven cities of gold. He never found them, but he did find Kansas. And then he made it back to Mexico, which is impressive. For the mid-16th century, when there was no maps of the area, uh, he died two decades later in Mexico City, and, and he got me thinking about the age of exploration. How fucking exciting. Must it have been to believe that seven cities loaded with gold lay somewhere up ahead, right around the next bed, waiting to bestow immense riches on anyone who could find them. That's some real-life Indiana Jones shit. Uh, I'm sure it was a huge bummer, you know, when he gave up looking for him after wandering around the Midwest for not finding shit, you know, for two years and then going completely bankrupt, which happened to Coronado. But before then, very exciting, very magical. And he did encounter tribe after tribe that no European had ever seen before. That's uh, pretty amazing. 1868, a proper town was founded along the Arkansas River. It was incorporated two years later. In its early days, Wichita was primarily used as a stopping place for big cattle drives coming up north from Texas. 
When the Santa Fe Railway reached the city in 1872, it became a major player in the cattle industry. Cattle would be driven up from Texas to Wichita, and then beef would be shipped via the railroad all over the damn place. Uh, you know, before it was the air capital of the world, it had the way less cool nickname of being Cowtown. That's actually kind of an awesome nickname. If you think about how, uh, you know, tasty beef is, you think about all the tasty steaks that were once walking through Wichita. Man, the smell of ground beef, right? Being cooked up on the stove. With nothing but some salt and pepper in it. Maybe some onions tossed in. That's a good smell. Or the smell of a juicy steak grilled on the barbecue. Love it so much. Gets me hungry. It makes me happy to be alive. Sorry you're so fucking delicious, cows. It'd be so much easier to put, uh, you know, put away the, the slaughterhouse hammer. Avoid red meat. Maybe shed a few pounds. If you weren't so tasty, it's your fault. By the mid-1870s, grain became equally as important as cattle trade, and settlers came in uh, quickly in large numbers to Wichita to farm the surrounding fields full of a dark, rich soil. By 1920, thanks in large part to cattle and agriculture, the population surpassed 100,000. Wichita transformed from a rural to an industrial town. Aviation industry now boomed. Meatpacking and aircraft manufacturing, as well as the oil industry, gave jobs, good jobs to many. Right? The, the, there was a huge oil boom. Black gold, Texas tea. The Wichita Natural Gas Company drilled down far enough in 1915, 670 feet down, to tap into the massive mid-continent oil field. The oil market in and around Wichita soon faded, but recently started making a comeback. New technology is turning lands once thought to be sucked dry of oil and gas into vast untapped reserves. It can produce more fossil fuels for about another 100 years. Outside of oil, aviation, and cattle, lots of other good jobs in Wichita. Coleman Outdoor Products? Who doesn't love a Coleman thermos? Or a little Coleman flip lid cooler. I've had a ton of Coleman camping gear over the years. Uh, they're based in Wichita, as are Coke Industries, uh, K-O-C-H, not C-O-K-E. Massive oil conglomerate, not massive sugar soda maker. Uh, also ran by an incredibly wealthy family of libertarians. Uh, one of the current 30 richest people in the world, 85-year-old Charles Coke, worth uh, around $46 billion. Born, raised, based in Wichita. Uh, Wichita overall is ranked as a great place to live for many years, although it's been slipping in the last decade. In July 2006, CNN Money and Money uh, Magazine ranked Wichita ninth on their list of the 10th best U.S. cities in which to live. In 2008, MSN Real Estate ranked Wichita number one on its list of most affordable cities. But then in 2019, in the Best Places to Live survey, U.S. News and World Report uh, ranked Wichita as 79 out of 125 U.S. cities, falling quite a bit. Uh, the publication noted that violent crime in Wichita had risen substantially over the past few years. And uh, crime has risen high enough in Wichita to consistently rank it as one of the top 50 most dangerous places to live in recent years in the U.S. It's been home to some pretty famous violent criminals over the years. The most famous is someone we already covered when we last learned about Wichita uh, way back in the fall of 2017. Holy shit, time flies. BTK, bind, torture, kill. Serial killer Dennis Rader, one of the most infamous serial killers of the 20th century, who killed 10 people in Wichita between 1974 and 1921 before taking a long cooling off period and then, uh, you know, surfacing to, uh, you know, bring up old crimes but not commit new ones and then be arrested in 2005. Currently in prison in Kansas right now at the El Dorado Correctional Facility in Butler County, where he will likely die in good fucking riddance. And another much lesser known, but arguably just as evil criminal who also called Wichita their home is sitting in the Lansing Correctional Facility in Leavenworth, Kansas, where he will die. Daniel Perez, a.k.a. Lou Castro, lived just outside of Wichita from 2001 to 2009 in a compound he and his cult called Angel's Landing. Fast cars, nice houses, lots of parties, and what appeared to be a wonderful little group of friends is what characterized life on the compound on the surface. 
Underneath all that was a lot of craziness and darkness, supposedly unbeknownst to the other members, but I feel like some of them had to have known. Uh, Perez was raping the daughters of cult member Jennifer Hudson hundreds of times. He sexually exploited and assaulted other children. He murdered at least one member of the cult. Uh, he was involved in the mysterious deaths and suicides of various other members. Six accidental deaths, quote unquote accidental, over a period of seven years led to millions of dollars in life insurance payouts that he spent. All that money kept the Angels Landing compound parties going. And Perez got that money by convincing followers he was more than human, that he was divine. He actually convinced some people that he was a thousand years old and possessed by various angels, some good and some evil. And if he's telling the truth, I do have to admit, he looks fucking great. I, I got to give credit where credit's due. When I first saw pics of him, I'll be honest, I thought he looked a little rough. I thought he looked a little haggard. But that's when I thought I was looking at pics of some pedo crazy creep in his 50s. For a pedo crazy creep who's a thousand years old, if you don't think he looks dynamite, you're just hating. He is without a doubt by far the best looking 1,000 year old dude I've ever seen. Every other person I've seen around that age is literally just a rotted out skeleton who's been dead for a long time. You know, maybe they have a little bit of dried out skin covering their bones, but that's it. Perez looks fucking way better than that. I mean, he even had a pretty sweet ponytail just a couple years ago. So hopefully he launches some kind of anti-aging vitamin and skincare product company from behind bars to share his angel-based stay young secrets with the rest of us. I'll be the first in line to buy his angel cream. It sounds pretty gross. Uh, seriously though, this fucking jackass actually did convince some people he was a thousand years old. He also convinced his few uh, followers that he had magic powers, like being able to predict followers' deaths. Deaths that conveniently occurred right when the group's bank account got pretty low on cash. Weird. Not suspicious at all. And how did he get people to buy all this nonsense? Well, he's a really, really good con man. He was also an idiot. You'll see that. But he did know how to spot a mark. He knew how to strike, who to strike, when to strike them. He knew how to befriend and build someone up when they were at their lowest point. He knew how to worm his way into their psyche and corrupt their mind and bend it to his will. Let's now get started from the beginning. Get to know this morally bankrupt sociopath and con artist as best we can in today's odd, creepy, and very unusual Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. According to two sources we found, that's about the only ones we could find that had uh, this date on it, on November 26, 1959, Daniel Uribe Perez was born in Aransas Pass, Texas, a little coastal community of just over 8,000 people, just 20 minutes from Corpus Christi, right? It's down in South, South Texas. You probably know that it's home to the largest hummingbird garden in Texas. If you're one of the three people on earth who care enough about hummingbirds to store random hummingbird trivia in your head like that. And what did he do back in Aransas Pass growing up? No clue. No one seems to have any idea. His childhood is a total mystery. He has not given any details. None of his followers know any details because none of them knew him, you know, uh, before he was, you know, about, uh, you know, in his 30s. Uh, most of the people who did know him then are dead. If he has any old friends or family, uh, they're not talking. I do have a guess about who his dad is. And this is admittedly a total guess. I did some digging around on Ancestry.com, looking through some obituaries from Aransas Pass. And I did come across an obituary for one Jose Angel Perez. Died September 11th, 2009. Born May 30th, 1915, which would have made him 44 when Daniel was born. I think this guy was his dad. This guy had six sons and a daughter. One of his sons, Daniel Perez. Is Perez a common last name? Yeah, not super rare. Is Daniel a common first name? Super common. But in 1959, there were only about 7,000 people living in Aransas. Uh, Hispanics make up 37% of the population there now. If the percentage of the population was similar in 1959, 
That would make the pool of possible people, you know, down to about 2,500 people. That's not many. How many Perez's could there have been out of that number? How many could have been the right ages for this all to work? You know, also kind of weird uh, that his middle name is Angel and that Daniel would be obsessed with angels, would call his compound Angel's Landing. Uh, Sadly, can't find shit though about Jose Angel Perez's life either. According to his obituary, he just says he was a devoted family man and a man of God who helped raise seven kids. Uh, Googled all his siblings' names. Nothing came up on any of them. No criminal records. Uh, Wish I could find out more. Seems like maybe he had a typical childhood. Maybe he was just a bad seed. But again, totally guessing. According to law enforcement statements, we know that when Daniel became an adult, he joined the Navy. Uh, No real details on how long he served, but it sounds like between 10 and 15 years based on some other details we do know about him. Uh, We know he was an airplane mechanic in the Navy. Uh, After his service, he worked as a correctional officer at a few different prisons. He worked in the aviation industry as a mechanic for a period of time, which may have led him to Wichita. Very little records out there about him, partially because he constantly was living under various aliases and because he was a pathological liar and still is, uh, you know, spins elaborate webs uh, of lies regarding his background all the time. To this day, whenever he's given a new interview, it's like a fucking different story. Uh, he gave so many different stories about his origins to so many different people. Some people thought he was a descendant of Geronimo, that he was American Indian. He told them that. He told others he was Mexican. Uh, he's gone by all kinds of different names. Daniel, Lou, Louis, Jose, Joseph, Joe, probably others. Told some people he was a seer, a psychic who could see the future and heal the sick. But he didn't tell everyone that. He gave various accounts of his various powers to various people. His supernatural abilities seemed to be pretty slippery, right? They shifted from person to person. He told some people he could bring both animals and people back from the dead. Told others he had the ability to reincarnate people. Told others he had like a, like basically a shortcut to heaven. You could send them to heaven. Uh, he sometimes claimed he could predict when you would die uh, or that he could speak to people from the past, uh, that he could bring the rain. That's a fun one. So annoying when someone this fucking dumb is able to become a cult leader. I mean, my God. So thankful I'm not wired right to become a cult follower. I just have way too much skeptic in me. Way too much. Get the fuck out of here with that silly bullshit. If someone was like, I can bring animals back from the dead, right? I would offer to turn over all my belongings to them. I would give them all my money, everything, if and only if they could bring one dead animal back in front of me. I got to make sure that it's dead and then they bring it back alive. Then I'm in, right? We could just drive around until we found some roadkill. I make sure it's dead. It's like, all right, bring it back, fucker. We go to a pet store. And I know this is a bit sad. Like just buy goldfish, lay it on the counter for about 10 minutes. Make sure it's totally dead. Maybe get a little tiny fish stethoscope or something. Make sure it doesn't have a little tiny fish heartbeat. And then just, all right, bring it back. Breathe new life into Nemo, you piece of shit, you dark magician. Let's go, necromancer. No? Huh? All right, that's what I figured. Or if it's a sunny day outside, just pop out and be like, all right, make it rain, dipshit. Nope. Okay, talk to someone someone from the past. What's, What's Pop Ward up to? And then, and then if he claimed to speak on behalf of my grandpa, I would know he was a liar. Like, my grandpa wouldn't fucking spit on your skeevy ass if you were on fire. Get out of here. Go on, get. No new cult member for you today. Better start running before I decide to take you out in the woods, tie you to a tree, tape your mouth shut, and just leave you to die. Right? If you have magic powers, you can just use them to free yourself. Uh, arguably, Daniel's craziest claim was that he had three different angels inhabiting his body. <laughs> Arthur, Daniel, and Amber. God, that's so, that's so good, that, those details. Can we all agree? that those are probably the dumbest angel names of all time. <laughs> what kind of fucking idiot names an angel Amber or Arthur? It sounds like he never even bothered to read the Bible. I mean, he, like he didn't even try to sound biblical, right? I mean, God, come on, put some effort into it. I mean, you don't want to go too big. You know, if you're picking out a fake angel name, you don't want to go like to uh, Archangel Michael or Gabriel, too well-known, too obvious. Uh, maybe uh, Azrael, 
right? The angel who separates the soul from the body at the moment of death, or maybe um, Selephiel, or, you know, uh, the lesser known archangel, more known in Eastern Orthodox Church for presiding over exorcisms. Maybe, maybe go for like a naughty angel, like a powerful demon like Moloch, uh, sometimes called one of the devil's angels. But this moron did no homework. He went with Arthur. <laughs> Arthur? Arthur sounds like the name you would give like the patron angel of like circus clowns or something. <laughs> hey kids, I'm Arthur the angel. Do you know heaven has clouds made out of cotton candy? <laughs> Did you know that in heaven, balloon animals never go flat? It's true. Here, pull my finger if you don't believe me. Smell that? <laughs> yeah, angel farts smell like fresh baked cinnamon sugar cookies. Hey, do you know that Arthur the angel can pee glitter? And I poop grilled cheese sandwiches? Oh, I can't wait till we can hang out in heaven. See you when you die in a few weeks. <laughs> whoops, whoops, we'll see the last part. <laughs> Fucking Arthur, get out of here. Uh, unfortunately, Arthur was not a corny clown angel. He was cruel. He was the angel who uh, most often committed acts of uh, abuse. Uh, Daniel was a nicer angel. I know, okay, that's, that's kind of sweet. Daniel, my angel. You are the nicest angel, better than Arthur and Amber. Uh, more like the friendly Lou that the cult knew. Uh, Amber, fucking Amber was the angel of death. Did not expect that. I thought Amber was going to be maybe like a lesser minion of Lucifina, maybe like a sexy dancer angel or something, like a lap, a lap dance angel, a Victoria's Secret angel. Uh, nope, the angel of death, Amber. <laughs> when Amber took over, I'm not making this up, Perez would stop blinking. He would put on an evil grin on his face. And he would talk in a monster voice. <laughs> and Amber would threaten to send people to purgatory. And followers would get scared. Holy shit. It would be so hard not to laugh at this clown going into one of his Amber trances. How extra sad and crazy, by the way, to lose a friend or family member to a cult this fucking stupid. Like to watch them get scared when Daniel made some over-the-top crazy scare face. <laughs> right? And then they tell you like, quiet, don't draw attention to yourself right now. Be, be careful. Amber, the angel of death has arrived. I swear to God, if one of my kids got sucked into a cult like this and I went to the compound to try and rescue them and then some little five foot six, 135 pound dipshit, that's Perez's size, sat down and pretended to go into a trance and made a scary face at me and said he was Amber, the angel of death. When I was done laughing, I hope that I would have the strength to kick him in the fucking face. That would snap him out of a trance real quick. And if no one stopped me, I hope I would just keep kicking him until he admitted that he was full of shit and begged me to stop. I actually think that would be worth going to jail for. Uh, in the early and mid-90s, Daniel Perez in his 30s now, old fucking Amber, is uh, still living in South Texas somewhere near uh, Aransas Pass, where he grew up. He just finished serving in the military as that airplane mechanic. When his service ended, he met a woman named Patricia Gomez, nicknamed Trish, who was only around 17 or 18 when she met this fucking psychopath. She would later change her name to Patricia Hughes for reasons unknown. Maybe he was going by Hughes at the time and she took his fake last name, I assume she did it to conceal her identity because she's probably doing illegal shit with Perez, but I can't say with certainty. Uh, Patricia allegedly did not know Perez as Daniel Perez, but knew him as Lou Castro. Why did he start living under aliases or in alias? Well, because he was hiding from pedophilia charges. More on that in a second. Trish is his first real follower. She's someone Perez will later talk in a dime so that he and other members can live off of her life insurance money. They will be romantically linked early on and then basically she will get too old for him. Uh, you'll see. In April 1996, around the time he met Trish, or perhaps just before he met her, Perez, 36, met a woman in Texas named Mary, her son, and her daughter Maggie, who was 11. Perez let them stay with him in his apartment while Mary prepared to move to Amarillo. Uh, young Mary will later go on to testify that she was sexually assaulted 
numerous times by Perez. She was only 11. When her mother Mary filed charges against him, she apparently didn't believe his bullshit about angels making him do it. It looked like Perez was going to go to jail. His case ended up getting dismissed, though, because he was presumed dead. Now, this sucks. Perez initially did plead guilty to charges. Then, right before his sentencing hearing, he fucking bounced. He disappeared. Then an ID was found on a body just over the border in Mexico with the name Daniel Perez. Size and age seemed to match. Investigators assumed that our Daniel Perez had died after fleeing. They thought the case was closed. Kind of, you know, made his records a little harder to access. And for uh, many years, no one would connect Lou Castro to this Daniel Perez until a lawman in Kansas would, uh, you know, do a lot of due diligence pursuing this dude. In the summer of 1996, Perez and Patricia traveled to North Dakota. There he meets a 15-year-old girl named Catherine. Perez was 36. Uh, He told Catherine he was much younger. And she believed him, even though he was actually, you know, much older than 36. You know, he was a thousand, remember? Uh, He told Catherine he had powers to make it rain, see the past, present, and future, and get information from the other side. And she believed him largely because, you know, she was, uh, she's 15. Uh, Perez and Catherine began a sexual relationship. Then both Perez and Catherine would later testify that after three months of their relationship, law enforcement uh, arrested Perez at Catherine's home and supposedly deported him. Catherine's dad, Lionel uh, Lemire Sr., found out about Perez, immediately didn't like what he saw, called authorities, good dad. Uh, one confusing uh, detail regarding all this, uh, the story is how was he deported? Why was he deported if he was born in Texas? At his later trial, he testified that he was a U.S. citizen, which would have made him hard to deport. A lot of of inconsistencies, mystery in this guy's tale. After he left town, either through deportation or more likely he just left, uh, probably with Trish, Perez never returned to North Dakota, but he and Catherine would continue to talk over the phone, which again makes it even, you know, less likely that he was deported. Uh, Perez was probably just calling, you know, checking on her, making sure if, uh, you know, Catherine's garden or lawn maybe needed watering, maybe she had some pets he needed to bring back to life. Uh, From late 1996 to 1997, Perez, still going by Lou Castro, is back in Texas, living in Corpus Christi with Patricia Gomez. There he meets soon-to-be-dedicated follower, 33-year-old Mona Griffith, her eight-year-old daughter, Lindsay, and her son, Cody, Lindsay's older brother. Mona, her children, Lou, and Patricia, now they all move into an apartment together. Who's he sleeping with? Don't know for sure, but sadly, if I had to guess, uh, everyone but Cody. After a few months, maybe not Mona, maybe not Mona and Cody, but the other two. After a few months, this little group, without Cody, moved to Wichita. Cody will remain in Texas with his father. Now, why did Mona pack up and take off with this fucking weirdo? Uh, she was going through a messy divorce, extremely emotionally vulnerable, uh, known to be a free spirit. Uh, she was into and open to unusual spiritual beliefs. She'd always wanted to travel. And she just made a terrible fucking decision. Uh, she's a perfect target for, target for Perez. After the move to Wichita, uh, but before the Angels Landing compound, he would later set up, Perez and Catherine uh, regain contact. She's only 16 or 17 at this point. She stays with Perez and uh, the others for two weeks before she goes back to North Dakota to finish school. And she would later say she was jealous of Perez's relationship with Lindsay, who is no older than nine right now. And that is obviously super fucking creepy. Uh, I've tossed out a lot of names. Uh, Sorry if you hear that uh, police siren going by. I've tossed out a lot of names. So uh, to bring everybody up to speed, in 1997, Daniel Perez, man of the three weird dumb name having angels, is now living somewhere around Wichita with Mona Griffith. She's around 34. Patricia Gomez, roughly 20 now. Mona's daughter, Lindsay, only eight or nine. 16-year-old Catherine is coming to stay with them, you know, off and on. Hard not to judge Mona here. Uh, Impossible not to judge her for me. Not making good mom moves. Why would you bring your daughter into this bullshit? So easy, I think, for many of us to paint cult members as blameless victims. But if we're going to judge cult leaders for their terrible, shitty decisions, shouldn't we also judge some of the cult members 
for the terrible decisions they make to join. Like no part of the story feels like, oh man, it could happen to anybody. No, not, not just anybody. It's going to fall for Perez's insane bullshit. You want to go on some weird fucking spiritual quest with a two-bit con artist uh, that some, you know, sometimes tells you his body's taken over by Amber, angel of death. Okay, throw your life away. Are you going to bring your eight-year-old into that? All right, fuck off. Like you bring an eight-year-old who based on other sources uh, could have easily stayed with dad back in Texas like her brother Cody did? Fuck off. And bringing her daughter led to her daughter being molested by Perez. Ugh. Uh, and I'm guessing he was blaming naughty angel Arthur for doing all of it because that's what he would do later. Such a ridiculous reality to live in. Uh, shortly after Wichita, the group moves to Rapid City, South Dakota, where they will stay for a few years and then they'll come back to Wichita. Lindsay's brother, Cody, will visit the group in Rapid City. He later reports that they lived outside the city in a very small cabin when he visited, kind of off the grid. You know, nice secluded spot where Perez can continue to have sex with all of them and twist their minds into his crazy angel nonsense. In Rapid City, over the next three years, Patricia meets a man named Brian Hughes and the two will start dating. He will become a cult member. Mona meets a man named Jim Chase, Rapid City realtor. Uh, they soon start dating and get engaged. He won't really have a chance to become a cult member because he's not going to live very long. Uh, is Perez still sleeping with these women? Probably not. He used to sleep with Trish. Probably never slept with Mona. The sick fuck preferred his uh, ladies real young. At some point around this time, presumably at uh, Perez's urging, Mona purchases a life insurance policy. Here starts this little chain uh, worth $750,000. List her daughter, Lindsay, as a beneficiary. Also list Patricia as Lindsay's caregiver. If something should happen to both Mona and Lindsay, the life insurance money will go to Patricia. And shortly after purchasing this life insurance policy, something does happen to both Mona and Lindsay. On February 19th, 2001, a plane with Mona, Lindsay, and Mona's fiance, Jim Chase, uh, all inside, goes missing. The three of them had left Rapid City in a twin-engine Beach Baron aircraft en route to Norfolk, Nebraska, where Chase had some business appointments. Lindsay was now 12, about to turn 13. One source says she was along on the ride because she was celebrating her upcoming 13th birthday. Jim was an experienced pilot, but he'd never filed a flight plan this time. And that made it difficult for the rescue team to find the plane. They didn't even know general area to search in. Lou, a.k.a. Daniel Perez, made efforts to talk to the search and rescue team. He seemed extremely upset and concerned. He also may have been the reason the plane crashed. Uh, they were reported missing on February 23rd. Cody and his father were not contacted until about a week after all, the group disappeared. Lou never called them. Uh, Cody finds that pretty suspicious. Uh, Lou and Patricia visited the insurance office multiple times during the search, trying to obtain Mona's insurance money. On March 30th, 2001, the bodies were found after a six-week search. The crash site was about four miles southeast of Norris, a tiny little South Dakota town of about 150 people. When they find the bodies of Mona, Lindsay, and Jim, everyone is devastated, including Lou, or at least he acts like he's devastated. An investigation of the plane reveals no mechanical problems. Uh, so the search team theorizes bad weather caused the crash. Mona was 38, Jim 50, and Lindsay 12. After the bodies were found, the $750,000 uh, worth of life insurance goes to Patricia Hughes. And some wonder if Perez, uh, who did work for years as an airplane mechanic, did something to the plane to make it crash, despite the investigation finding nothing. Others, and I know this sounds real insane, others wonder if Perez, who I should call Lou now, since that's what he's going by and has gone by for years, they wonder if Lou convinced Mona to crash the plane and kill herself with the others on board. For right now, uh, since I know this claim is super bizarre, I'm just going to toss it out and move on. But remember it. It won't seem as crazy later on when you know more about Perez. Uh, Mona will not be the first person former members think Lou convinced to either take themselves out or let him take them out. In the summer of 2001, Patricia, Brian, and their new baby daughter, Nora, Lou, and Catherine, yes, she's living with them full-time now, they all moved to Lee's Summit, Missouri. 
right? This little, little quick little stop before Wichita. It's a suburb of Kansas City, home to about 100,000 people. Uh, there they meet real estate agent, soon to be cult member, 41-year-old Jennifer Hudson, who helps them find a home. The home was purchased under Catherine's name. Catherine's now just 20, too old for Perez. He wants girls to sleep with, and uh, he finds them, some younger girls, and he finds them in Jennifer's two daughters. More on that in a bit. Uh, Perez finds another great mark in Jennifer. She was a huge believer in angels. I guess she was borderline obsessed with angels. Always talked about them. How they watched over people, how they protected people. Lou, of course, uh, notices this. I'm sure has a little fucked up, like, aha, moment. Starts talking to some of his angel jibber-jabber to her. Tells her that he's an angel. He has special powers or that he's infested with angels. Uh, his angel story seems to shift around depending on who he's talking to. Sometimes he's an angel. Sometimes he's possessed by angels. Again, this fucker's lazy. He didn't really write this stuff down. <laughs> he didn't create like a character log or anything. Didn't put a lot of effort into his mythology. Uh, Jennifer later wrote in her journal about the first interaction she had with the group in 2001, saying the first time I met Trish, Brian, and Lou, their innocence and trust of people in situations was a little alarming to me. I began to sense that I needed to watch out for them more than I did for other people. It was almost as if we had some sort of instant bond or connection, with my sole purpose being their protector. Oh, boy. Lou was lazy, and as you'll see over the course of this episode, dumb in many ways, but he was a good con man. Just like a lot of those Nigerian spam email authors, right? he'd gotten her to feel sorry for him. Make, make her, her think that he, you know, he needs her. He plays to her maternal instincts, ego, and love of angels. Three months after moving to Missouri, the group sells the home they just bought in Lee Summit and moved back to Wichita. They move into some townhomes initially while they try and figure out where they're going to live more permanently. After they leave, Jennifer begins fighting with her husband. Sarah McGrath, her daughter, remembers her mom saying, I don't like being so far from Lou. Oh boy. She and Lou are now keeping in contact and that human turd is worming his way further and further into her head. Trish convinces Jennifer that she should choose a new family, a better family. She should come live with them. They'll have a compound. And then Jennifer makes the worst fucking decision of her life by far. She listens to Trish, Lou's right-hand disciple. Jennifer divorces her husband, moves herself and her two daughters, Sarah and Emily, to Wichita. Sarah is 17 now. Emily is 10 when they move. And at first, Sarah does not like Lou. Her instincts are steering her in the right direction, but he tries his hardest to win both the girls over, and he does. Her mom, Jennifer, is fascinated with him and the stories he tells. She buys it all, quickly becomes uh, quickly comes to believe that he is, in fact, an angel or and maybe also possessed by angels, He's, he's a psychic. He has magical powers, you know, all that shit. Doesn't matter how little sense it makes. She just wanted to believe, so she did. How often does that happen? And how sad is it? Uh, now, with all that life insurance money, the group buys a 20-acre property on the edge of Wichita, where land is cheap, and they start building three nice houses for everybody to live in. They also buy some sports cars, some ATVs. They get a pool built. Fucking living it up. Throwing parties, inviting random people they meet to these parties, getting drunk, listening to loud music at night, buying lots of guns. Fucking around with model airplanes. More, more on that later. Just have a good old time listening to Lou talk shit at night about angels and magic and how he can see the future and stuff. Uh, I wish I had more specific details, you know, some quotes on what he would say in his rambling sermon-ish, you know, monologues. I doubt it made much sense, you know? Just the mutterings of a fucking lunatic. And that's how I, that's how I knew that Amber, the angel of death, had inhabited my soul. And then Arthur entered my body as well. Oh, you... <laughs> Oh, shit. You don't want to know about Arthur and what he wants, okay? And I began to have psychic visions. And I could I could hear the word of God. And God said, go to Wichita. Eat, drink, be merry. Hey, can someone grab another beer? Hey, no, out in the back. Cold one. And then God said, get some nice guns. Get a couple four-wheelers. Get a 91 T-top Camaro and burn that fucking rubber, son. God said, do not take the lowly jobs of men. Honest work, that's the devil. That's the devil's distraction. That's how the king of lies is going to get you. 
and you're not going to hear God's word anymore. I will give you to the keys uh, to the uh, the kingdom of heaven. Hey, can someone can someone grab me a fresh bag of potato chips? These ladies, I don't know, they've been open or something. People keep leaving open their stale. God and his angels said, you have to first play in the mud and drink Natty Light and await my word. Party on, children. Fuck yeah, bro. Nice. Right? Have a good time. And uh, one more thing, uh, to hell with the devil. To Turn up that striper. Okay. Uh, Lou started working on some pedo grooming. I uh, started pedo grooming Jennifer's daughters right away. For Emily's 11th birthday, he bought her a horse, told her she could always have whatever she wanted. He started buttering up Sarah as best he could as well. Tried to convince her he really was an angel. He did convince her uh, to convince the girls to believe Lou's claims of being an angel. Trish told him a story about a time when he died. He for sure died. And then he came back to life. And that story convinced Sarah that he was telling the truth. Now, now, why would Trish tell the story? The girls trusted Trish. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I wish I knew. Pressure from Perez, maybe? Did he maybe have some dirt on her that he was starting to expose if she didn't go along with his fucking nonsense? Did she actually somehow believe that he really was angelic? She never said, and she will never say now because she's dead. Uh, Lou killed her. More on that soon. Shortly after moving to Angel's Landing after Trish and her mom convinced her that Lou was a good dude and an angel, Sarah realized that angels aren't always kind and protective when Lou rapes her for the first of what will be many times. She was too scared to tell anybody. Later said that she, uh, you know, had also been brought up very, very innocent, naive, and she didn't fully realize that she'd even been sexually abused. Ah, <sighs> these poor people. Uh, November 1st, 2001, Sarah's sister Emily is raped for the first time. One of the most disturbing lies he tells Emily to convince her that it's okay for him to have sex with a very young girl is that he's an angel, hundreds of years old, like a thousand years old, and he needs to have sex with young girls or he'll die. That's how he stays alive. He said he would literally die if she didn't have sex with him. Just some kind of crazy, like, sorry, I have to do this. I don't make the rules. I just work here. Kind of insane bullshit. What a, fu- what a fucking nightmare that would be if that was actually true. You ever have weird thoughts like, uh, what if God is real? What if he does exist? But, and this is a big but, he's completely fucking insane. <laughs> and we're all fucked. Like, like, what if Perez was right? Like, ever let your mind go to that crazy and dark of a place? Like, you know, God exists, he has angels, uh, he has his angels possess human, humans, they're named like Arthur and Amber and fucking dumb angel names. And then the, and then the ang- angels actually do need a young girl vagina to keep from dying. Like, like, what if Jeffrey Epstein <laughs> is up in some kind of horrific heaven right now, sitting on the right hand of God, just getting high fives from the, all, from the Almighty? For quote, getting it. You know, God's like, you you always got it, Jeff. You always understood what life was really about. Help yourself to all the kid souls up here. That's, that's why I made them. <laughs> God loves little children. <laughs> they sing it. They just didn't know what I meant. Uh, meanwhile, the devil's down in hell trying to cure cancer or something. He's actually a fucking great positive entity that's just been the victim of a horrible smear campaign for millennia. Please let that not be reality. Oh my heck. That'll be the worst. Come on, Nimrod. Let virtue be rewarded. Let the wicked be punished. Uh, Lou convinces young Emily it's her job to take care of him, have sex with him so he can stay alive. What a mind fuck. Uh, he would even read random Bible verses. <laughs> oh my God, twist their interpretation, justify his actions, make her think it was all godly. So I guess he, you know, looked at the Bible for like five minutes. Uh, poor young Emily fell in love with Lou, who's now 42 years old. She goes along with anything he asks, even if she feels uncomfortable about it because, you know, uh, you know, God is, uh, this is what he wants, she thinks. Yikes. Uh, she keeps the true uh, nature of their relationship quiet. Somehow her older sister, Sarah, will later claim that other members did not know that Emily was being continually ra- raped by Perez, even though Emily now moves into his bedroom and they sleep in the same bed together every night. Emily's mom was apparently aware of this, 
but somehow didn't think anything inappropriate was going on because you know uh, angels. <laughs> it's 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 just angels. It's okay for that you know forty some year old fucking guy to sleep with a you know ten year old. You know, hey, who am I to judge? A wee bit of a fucked up mom move there. Angels don't molest kids, dummy. Uh, they don't show up on earth as 42-year-old dudes who share beds with 11-year-olds. She's a fucking terrible mother. It's, I just, how, how else can you fucking look at it? Both of Jennifer's daughters now being regularly raped by Perez right under her nose. Sarah will later talk about how Lou uh, abused them both, but differently. She uh, says he was always more violent with her than Emily. Showed Emily preferential treatment. Lou always told Sarah that, you know, he wasn't the one being violent. It was the uh, angels inside of it. It was, <laughs> it was Arthur. Arthur's an abusive pedophile angel. If only the nice angel, Daniel, could boot him out, but he can't. Because Amber, you know, who's even stronger, likes keeping him around. You get it. Uh, Sarah said later that uh, her being treated worse than Emily caused her and her sister to fight, that Lou hated it when they fought, and would tell them that Amber, the angel of death, would take them to purgatory and they would be stuck forever if they didn't, you know, fucking shut up. And they believed that shit because they had nothing but crazy people around them. Uh, God, I hope both Emily and Sarah get continual therapy now. I can't imagine how growing up with that as your reality would fuck your head up. Uh, to further illustrate the kind of crazy they were living with, Sarah later told the following story in one of her documentary interviews. She said that when she disobeyed Lou, he would often shout at her, degrade her, and tell her, tell her that she was broken. And she said that one time, when the two of them were home alone, he told her that she would be broken for the rest of her life if she didn't let him fix her. He told her that the only way for her to ever be able to get married and have children of her own would be for him to let him uh, fix her. So creepy. By fixing, he meant raping. After it was over, Sarah asked him if she was finally fixed, to which Lou said that the fix was temporary. In order to keep her fixed, he would have to continue having sex with her or she'd go back to being broken. Then he told her that if she ever told anyone how he was fixing her, he would have to kill her father. Spoken like a true angel. That's what angels do. If you know one thing about angels, you know you should know that they rape you and then they tell you that if you tell anybody, they're going to fucking kill your dad. Amen. Uh, Lou would continue to rape Sarah for uh, seven years, from the age of 17 to the age of 24. Sarah says it took her years to realize she was even being raped. My God. This is why you talk to your kids about sex. Not kidding. This is like an extreme example of why you need to talk to your kids about sex. You let them know exactly what it is, right? So they know what it is. So they know what's being, what's being done around them, possibly to them. Right? You let them know uh, who should not be having sex with them and why. You let them know how, how some people are insane, evil liars. And you talk to them about how they will make threats and how the threats are bullshit. You tell them that there are lunatics out there in the world who will try and, you know, uh, and who will tell you crazy shit in order to get in your pants. You tell them that God does not work in ways anywhere near that mysterious. God doesn't want anyone molesting kids. Anyone who tells them otherwise is a dirty motherfucker who needs a reckoning. My kids are sick of me checking in on, on them about perverts. And I don't even care, right? I check in with them about friends, friends' parents. You know, they go to sleepover. What are their parents up to? What are their parents doing? No one's touching you, right? They're like, God, no, dad. All right, okay, you tell me if they were, right? But yes, of course. I'd rather have them think that I'm just paranoid and crazy than risk them having to live with that kind of secret. If I ever end up in prison, I, it'll probably be for killing some dirty motherfucker for just fucking with the wrong family, which is, I think, about the most noble thing you can go to prison for, in my opinion. Uh, Sarah would later say that the abuse she and her sister suffered usually happened late at night when their mom, Jennifer, was asleep in the house next door. Emily, though, would later say that it was not uncommon at all for Lou to sneak her away for like an hour in the middle of the day and no one thought anything of it. And she's sleeping in the same bed with him. It's, it's, all, it's all insane. Other than this sick shit, what else is going on at Angel's Landing? Well, everyone living there always had dinner together, often breakfast and lunch as well. It's like one big fucked up family where the dad says he's possessed by angels and rapes some of the kids. Uh, Trish is in charge of cooking. No one ever really does chores. Jennifer and Brian end up getting day jobs. Everyone else remains unemployed. 
Uh, Trish took care of the girls while Jennifer was gone in the mornings and after school. Girls loved Trish, considered her to be a second mom. There were parties every weekend. Uh, Emily and Sarah, you know, would watch over Patricia's youngest while the adults drank and socialized. Uh, drinking was commonplace. That comes up a lot in sources. Most pictures of Perez show him holding a beer bottle in both, you know, one of his hands. Sarah says Lou drank every single day, uh, kind of an all day, every day kind of dude. Those angels, they'd be thirsty. Sometimes Lou would hold family meetings where he would yell at people, criticize them, drunkenly tell them what to do. He'd verbally beat everyone down to maintain control of them, build them up and beat them down. A lot of back and forth. Kept everyone off balance, craving his approval. By spring of 2002, the group completed building two of their three houses on the property, uh, the houses they had bought in their compound in Sedgwick County. Angels Landing almost complete. The property with three large houses on it located on the 9500 block in North Oliver, just north of Wichita, near Valley Center and Kichai. Uh, one house had Sarah, Emily, Lou, and Jennifer in it. Another had Trish, Brian, Catherine, and little Nora. Lou eventually would move into the third house, not fully completed until 2005. According to Sarah, each little family had their own little house. Uh, despite the rapes, which she says uh, at this point she saw as mostly Lou fixing her, Sarah thought they were all a real family since everyone was supportive and close. She said in the beginning, things were fine and dandy, but it didn't take long for things to turn. And how sad in that, that she's talking about in the beginning, it was still, it was during the raping part. That, that comparatively was fine and dandy compared to what's coming later. Uh, life seemed to outsiders at least, and maybe to everyone uh, as weird as this sounds on Angel's Landing to be pretty good. There were large houses, expensive cars, horses, a pool, anything anybody wanted they could have. Sarah would later tell the, the, an investigation discovery show, we had everything we ever wanted, but there was always a price to pay. In April of 2003, someone with the ability to investigate Lou Castro finally gets suspicious about his piece of shit regarding what's going on at Angel's Landing. Local detective Robert Goodwin. Goodwin wondered about the unexplained wealth the group seemed to have. He started poking around, heard from a few people about how Lou was always bragging about his luxurious lifestyle. Started to wonder how they were all living on this 20-acre property, how they had cars worth $40,000 roughly each, swimming pool, multiple houses, but only two of them had day jobs. Right? Jennifer worked as a realtor. Brian worked as an auto mechanic. No one else made any money. How was this, how was this operating? Detective Goodwin didn't think their combined income came close to covering the expenses of Angel's Landing. Even more suspicious, he couldn't find any background info at all on a dude named Lou Castro who matched the age, address, etc. of the dude he was looking into. Nothing. No record of the guy existing in any databases he was searching. Goodwin made a bunch of large drug trafficker busts previously over the course of his career, and how Castro and those around him were living reminded him of the lifestyles of the people he'd busted. So he started keeping an eye on things. He kept digging. He soon found out that the Angels Landing houses did not have very many personal items or homey touches. They seemed like staged homes, very suspicious. Also weird, the parking area, written in the concrete, was the name Angels Landing. All the group's cars had vanity plates labeling them Angel 1, Angel 2, Angel 3, etc. And the women in the group always paid for everything, using various credit cards to purchase what they needed, never the men. Goodwin started to wonder, are these people in some sort of cult? Ding, 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 Yes! And then, the, and then even more suspicion arises when one of the angels dies. Before we dive into the details of this death, this seems like the best spot for today's sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But 
What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will 
thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thank you for listening. Now, let's see what happened to one of those angels. On June 23rd, 2003, first follower Patricia Hughes drowns in the pool at Angel's Landing. Young Emily then called 911 at 3 o'clock p.m. She called Sarah after calling 911. A firefighter took the phone from her, said, Sarah, I need you to come home as quick as you can. Service at school. Uh, she and Lou rushed home from the car dealership. Or, I'm sorry, she was at the car dealership. She was not at school. Uh, Sergeant Benjamin Blick was one of the first responders. Blick spoke to Sarah's sister, Emily. She was sobbing uncontrollably. Could hardly talk about what happened. They tried to revive Trish for 45 minutes to no avail. She was dead on arrival at the hospital. Despite finding evidence of blunt force trauma to her head, Patricia's death was declared an accidental drowning. Remember that blunt force trauma? Uh, Things are not what they seem here. Of course not. The paramedics noted that they thought it was strange that Patricia was found in the shallow end where she could have stood up, just, you know, stood up in the water. Also, Patricia allegedly did not know how to swim, so why was she even in the pool when no one else was around? Uh, This death uh, concerned Detective Goodwin. Was it truly an accident or just another piece of evidence in his growing case against Castro. He looks further into Lou. He finds out that his license uh, plate was registered in South Dakota. Or, I'm sorry, his driver's license was registered in South Dakota. I keep adding details, not in the notes, and then <laughs> correcting myself. He began hearing stories that Castro may have had a, a wife and child who died in a plane crash. He read in some reports that it's like, says wife and child, not his wife and child. Is that what Lou told some people? Probably. Uh, he finds a story in, the, in a Rapid City newspaper about the plane crash in, in the obituary. Uh, Lou is listed as Mona Griffith's, Griffith's brother. He was not a brother. Did he tell other people that? Probably. He was definitely not good at keeping his story straight. Goodwin further searched databases and found information about every compound member except Lou Castro. So he's more concerned than ever. Right? He just can't find any details about this guy other than, you know, being named, uh, you know, uh, associated with people who died in a plane crash. And, uh, and he would have been able to make an arrest if he knew more details about Trisha's drowning, details that will be revealed in 2011 by Emily. Let's go over those details now. A week before Patricia's death, Lou foretold his followers that Patricia was going to die, right? This is one of his magic gifts, remember? Patricia and Lou sat Emily down days before she died, told her something big was happening. They told her it was Patricia's time to go to the other side and that they needed her help. Emily's upset, asked Perez why he couldn't just do it himself. Uh, He tells her that it would take him too close to death to be there when Patricia died. Emily insists she didn't want to be there when Patricia died either. So Lou then tells her that he will just bend time (laughs) <laughs> so she could be at the pool when Patricia died and also be somewhere else at the same time so she could not be there when she died. Does that make sense? If it's hard to follow, it's because it's fucking gibberish. I had to go over this a few times to get my head around it. It all feels, you know, it feels like a poorly written knockoff of season one of True Detective. Reminds me of like a, like a janky version of Matthew McConaughey. You know, his time is a flat circle monologue. Emily, this is a world where nothing's solved. Someone once told me that time is a flat circle. Everything we've done or will do, we're gonna do over and over and over again. You'll be there with Trish, and also you won't be there. You might be on your horse. You might be watching a rerun of Saved by the Bell. It's hard to say specifically. Trish will still be there. But pay attention, she won't be there. She'll be in the pool, drown, 
but also not there and, and making breakfast like always. Or perhaps buying some new flatware at Pier 1 as they were having a good sale. Or maybe playing Monopoly with Brian, they enjoyed that. And there will be angels. Amber, definitely Arthur, probably Daniel. I'll be Mona's husband. But I won't be. I'll be her brother. And I won't be. And I won't know her. And I will know her. And I'll be Lou. And I'll be Daniel. Maybe at the same time, I'll be Joe or Helen Henney. I, I, there's a chance I'll be Helen Henney, the chicken lady who plays bass in the Chuck E. Cheese animatronic band. And this will happen again and again and again forever. Do you understand? Uh, this is fucking crazy. Uh, seriously, as crazy as all this sounds. <laughs> oh my God. Patricia comforts Emily, agreeing with Lou. It's, it's uh, you know, her time to go. Uh, she promised she'd come back. Lou assures her she will come back. Lou convinces Emily that Patricia's uh, dying is a good thing. It's fucking insane. Uh, insane that Patricia went along with this or appeared to go along with this on some level. Like that she bought this guy's crazy bullshit enough that she agreed to let him kill her to collect on a life insurance policy because she thought that he could just bring her back and it wouldn't even matter because she'd just be back alive. Uh, maybe. She seems to have had second thoughts when it came to dying, as we will learn when we go over the trial info. Seems that at least at the last second, she's like, maybe, maybe I don't want to do this. On June 23rd, Lou, Patricia, Nora, and Emily, they went to the pool when no one else was around. Before Patricia walked into the pool, she kissed Nora goodbye, told her she'd return eventually. Lou told Emily to take little Nora into the pool house. Her age is never given in sources, but based on where in the timeline she would have been born, uh, she couldn't have been more than four, likely a year or two younger, based on how she was used to help stage her mom's death. Once she and Nora are inside, Emily hears a small scream, followed by a splash. Perez then comes into the pool house. A few minutes later, soaking wet, panting, out of breath. He looks sad, looks distraught. He tells her to stay in the pool house for 20 minutes so he could go to the car dealership to meet up with Sarah. He tells her not to look outside. Emily agrees. 20 minutes later, Emily calmly carries Nora into the pool where she sees Patricia floating dead in the shallow end. She and Nora jump into the deep end to get thoroughly wet, then get out quickly. As per their instructions from Lou, she waits 20 to 30 minutes further to call 911. Uh, and then, you know, on the phone, she tells him the script that Lou gave her. Lou now has a nice alibi. He's at the car dealership with Sarah while Nora, you know, has died. But in reality, of course, you know, she agreed to let him drown her or changed her mind at the last second. And then he killed her is what, you know, he will be found guilty of in court. Earlier that day, Sarah had been instructed by Lou to go to the car dealership at a certain time. As, uh, you know, she was getting ready to drive over. Uh, Lou drove up next to her in a Corvette, said, let's go with the dealership. He pretended to receive news of Trisha's death for the first time, then returns home with Sarah. It's a big elaborate, you know, ruse. Patricia's life insurance payouts $1.24 million, which her husband Brian receives in 2003. And how interesting is this detail that Lou never receives the money himself when someone dies, right? To put some distance between himself and these other people and because he's us using an alias. So probably for legal reasons, he can't collect. Another cult member will collect and then that cult member is often the next to die. And this way, I guess he's not so stupid. Pretty ingenious evil plan he has here, this weird fucked up domino life insurance system he has. Detective Goodwin will eventually be able to dig into the financial records of the cult and see this strange pattern. Trisha's body taken back to Texas for burial. Some members go to her funeral. Lou carefully instructs them not to tell anyone in Texas that he's in Kansas, guessing he doesn't want local authorities down there to realize that he's not dead after all and should be in jail for that previous child molestation conviction. Uh, Brian becomes severely depressed after Trish dies. He often sleeps with her wedding picture in the bed with him. So it's fucking sad. Uh, Lou starts spending more and more time with Brian now, talking to him more than he ever did before, specifically about death, working on his brain. He convinces Brian that going over the other side is the ultimate goal in life. It's a good thing. 
And if you lived right, if you died right, it was just stepping through a doorway, right into a much better existence. Now you got to live in a place where you couldn't feel pain. You don't feel peace. He tells Brian, one day you're going to get your chance to go to the other side. Too bad he couldn't uh, get his rapey angel Arthur to uh, go to that peaceful place. Lou is getting Brian mentally prepared to sacrifice himself like Trish seems to have at least initially agreed to. Right? Then they can have even more money to fuck around with, buy sports cars and more ATVs and keep getting drunk. Such, such a weird, crafty, and also unambitious cult leader. Doesn't seem like Perez ever wanted to lead a big cult. Never did any real recruiting. That would take too much work. Sounds like he hung around, drank pretty much every day, just wanted enough followers to be able to have, you know, one die every couple of years so he could get some life insurance money, keep his cool cars, have some more cool toys, a pool, live in a nice house, have a few people think he's an angel or infest with angels and be able to have sex with an underage girl or two. Uh, shortly after Patricia's death, Emily and Sarah somehow learn about the plane crash in 2001. Now they become a little bit suspicious. Emily later recalls how after Patricia's death, when they got the insurance money, the cars increased in both number and price tag. Emily actually talked to Lou about her concerns and he told her not to worry because Patricia, she's not really dead. She's going to come back to life. He said the incident didn't really occur also the way that she thought it did. That's just her mind playing tricks on her, manipulating her. Just some more time as a flat circle bullshit. Uh, three months after Trisha's death in September of 2003, Lou donates $19,000 to the city of Wichita to help them buy a new police vehicle. Trying to curry some favor here. Said he, uh, all he wanted in return was a sticker on the vehicle in remembrance of Patricia. Really, I think he just wanted them to think he was a great guy, not a murdering cult leader. Lou actively now befriending local officers. Sarah will even soon start dating an officer. A few officers will stop by the compound on a regular basis for a while, hang out at some of Perez's parties. Both Sarah and Emily are too afraid still to tell these officers what's being done to them on the, comp on the compound. Also, in later, to, uh, later in 2003, Sarah and Emily's mom, Jennifer Hudson, begins dating a man named David Queering. David had recently gone through divorce, didn't want to be alone. He wanted to feel like he was part of a community, which is what drew him not just to Jennifer, but to the Angels Landing Group. A few months later, in early 2004, a woman named Morgan joins the group. Morgan and Lou begin a romantic relationship. Eventually, they will have a daughter together. Really hard to find info on Morgan. I don't know her last name or how old she was. Guessing she was young. After Morgan joins her little cult, Lou forces, or maybe I should say strongly pressures his group members to take out more life insurance policies. When they first moved to Wichita, Patricia took out the million-dollar policy that included an accidental death rider. Brian was the beneficiary. Catherine, the co-beneficiary. Now Brian, Catherine, Jennifer, and Morgan also take out expensive life insurance policies. According to later court testimony, Lou was present whenever anyone took out a life insurance policy and he dictated, uh, you know, uh, the amount, the beneficiaries, all that stuff. All the reason I'm sure wrapped up in some type of angel mumbo jumbo. You know, uh, why do you have to take out a life insurance policy as well? Well, you know, you know what? I mean, I guess you are young and healthy. Uh, maybe, you, maybe, you know what? Maybe you don't need to take one. You know, I think, oh, oh God. Oh, ah, not now, Arthur. Please don't possess me. I'm not Daniel. I'm. I'm Arthur now. I'm Arthur, the, the angel of violence. And did I say Daniel? I meant Lou. No, I'm not. I'm not Daniel or Lou. I'm definitely Arthur, angel of violence. And if you don't sign the policy, I will make Lou rape you by the power of grade school or by Jesus or something. Anyway, just do it. Or Amber will send you to purgatory. Oh, no, not another angel. Oh, dang it. Amber. I'm now Amber, who sounds exactly like Arthur, and I will send your soul to purgatory like the definitely different angel of Arthur said earlier. Okay, don't don't try to reason why. I ask what I ask ye of little faith. You know not what the hour passing through camel needles, uh, water wine, yada yada. And then I just picture a really confused cult member just being like, ah, fucking whatever, and then just signing some shit. 
Uh, Catherine and Morgan both lied about their net worths on their life insurance applications to get more credit. Uh, yep, in order to be able to buy even more fun shit, Lou has group members take out lots of credit cards to purchase more vehicles, more toys during their time in Wichita. Lou directs the application process. The paperwork is always in someone else's name. You know, it's perfect for him. What does he care if he ruins someone else's credit? And in his mind, they're all going to be dead soon anyways. You know, if they start skimping on payments before they die, oh, well, he's not going to be on the hook for the debt they'll carry. He reminds me of some kind of fucked up cattle rancher, right? These people were his cows. He harvested them. He helped feed them, treated most of them pretty well. He molested a few, but the rest pretty well. Then at a certain point, you know, he has them slaughtered and he just feasts off of their deaths. Uh, soon, Lou and Morgan get engaged. This doesn't stop him from continuing to rape both Emily and Sarah. Uh, he does uh, kick Emily out of the master bedroom, though, now, which was emotionally traumatizing to Emily, who was only 12. She later said at his trial that it felt like she was getting divorced. Poor kid. I feel sorry for her sister, Sarah, as well, but I mostly feel sorry, or, or I feel the most sorry for Emily to be raised in this madness from such a young age, to be victimized from such a young age. Also in 2004, David Quiring officially moves into Angel's Landing compound. Uh, he and Jennifer get married. It seems unless there was another David Quiring at the right age to be married to Jennifer at this time that David passed away in Wichita uh, just recently on February 5th this year at the age of 60 due to complications from COVID-19. Uh, in late 2004, Detective Goodwin now enlists FBI Special Agent John Sullivan into investigating Castro. Two had worked together on some drug cases back in the late 90s. Sullivan, like Goodwin, was unable to find a photo or description of Castro. There was seemingly, uh, seemingly no trail for him still. Uh, Goodwin now has heard stories from locals about Castro, telling members how much to withdraw from ATMs at local convenience stores. He's now heard about Castro giving a variety of different explanations to community members about where his money came from. He tells some it's oil money. Tells others he invented an airplane tank. <laughs> uh, tells others that he sold cattle to the government. This guy's so fucking dumb in some ways. It's amazing to me. He wasn't caught so much earlier. He just cannot keep his story straight. Uh, in a desperate effort to get more info, Goodwin gathers trash from the compound, but the crime lab doesn't find any prints on Castro. Uh, once he sees Castro and a woman at a restaurant, he got Goodwin follows him, watches him, gets permission from the manager to collect the glasses they use, but he still can't get a fingerprint. Poor guy cannot catch a break when it comes to finding out who the fuck Castro really is. Luckily, he will not give up. In December of 2004, Mystery Lady Morgan now gives birth to her and Lou's daughter, Alice. What a lucky baby. Her daddy's an angel. Or maybe three. Or probably none. Uh, on March 2nd, 2006, wouldn't you know it, Brian Hughes dies in a freak accident. He's crushed beneath the car he was working on. Brian was an experienced mechanic, and a lot of people find it odd that he'd put the jack in a position to be able to easily slip like it did, causing the car to fall on him and crush him to death. Former cult member Sarah thinks that Perez talked him into killing himself and making it look like an accident so that the little crew could collect a third life insurance policy now. Brian was visiting family in South Dakota, was working on a car in his brother's driveway when it happened. Right before it happened, he'd called back to Wichita and spoken with Lou. Then he'd asked to speak to his daughter uh, and he told Nora goodbye over the phone. Pretty weird. Then just a few hours later, the people back at Angel's Landing receive a call about his death. Both Emily and Sarah can't believe it. Brian was extremely safety conscious, worked as a mechanic for a long time. He knew how to be safe around cars. Sarah, Jennifer, and Emily all believe Brian kicked the jack out from under his uh, under the car, committing suicide because Lou convinced him it was time to cross over and make it look like an accident. Brian's life insurance payout, over $700,000. Cult member Catherine's the beneficiary. What a crazy and dark gift this dude had. The ability to worm his way into someone's mind so far he could talk them into dying for him. He was like a small-time Jim Jones, but sneakier, right? And in, a, and in a really fucked up way, I hate to use this phrasing, but I don't know how else to express it in a way more impressive. As for as dumb as he was in some ways, like not keeping his story straight, 
He was real smart when it came to the specific ability to convince someone that it was okay to die, that it was good to die and make them think you could come back from the other side, make them believe it so thoroughly that they would leave their young daughter behind, right? Might as well give your, you know, angel, uh, you know, some life insurance money as well. And unlike Heaven's Gates, you know, Marshall Applewhite or Jim Jones, Perez didn't get a group of people all worked up to kill themselves for some fabricated singular purpose, like hopping on a spaceship or standing up to a tyrannical government, hell-bent on imprisoning them or destroying them. He convinced separate members to take their lives over and over, probably for different reasons, based on different bullshit stories. Like he would just work on the psyche of each person, break them down, get them to take themselves out when it was the most financially beneficial time uh, for them to do so for him. When his bank accounts, you know, were, were getting just low enough. It was like some kind of dark wizard who used his warlock powers to buy more Corvettes and ATVs out in Kansas. Uh, later in August 2006, a woman named Susan visits the compound with her eight-year-old daughter, Claire, to see if she would like to join the family. Sources do not say how she came into Lou's orbit, only that she did. And Lou talked Sarah into filming a video of eight-year-old Claire undressing twice. He told her he just needed to see if she had a birthmark that had showed up in one of his angel visions. He definitely was not having her help him make child porn. No way. Definitely not that. The birthmark would tell him if Susan was meant to join the group. Uh, Sarah didn't want to do it, but agreed because this sick fuck kept threatening to kill her dad if she didn't do whatever he wanted. In 2007, Detective Goodwin is able to get permission from the U.S. Attorney's Office now to open up a case to review the Angels Landing Group's finances. There's just been too many mysterious deaths. Three died in that plane crash. Then Trish, then Brian. Can't figure out who Lou is. Goodwin wonders if Lou is just extremely unlucky to have the people around him die left and right or if he's involved in some way. Goodwin now learns about Brian's death or he had learned about Brian's death because there was a custody battle uh, over Nora between Lou and uh, the girl's grandparents. Lou sadly would eventually win custody of Nora. That's horrible. With access to the cult's financial records, Godwin or Goodwin, I just want to, I, don't, I, I always want to say Godwin. Goodwin soon discovered the life insurance policies taken out by various members, then cashed in by beneficiaries who were also cult members. He sees the pattern. Uh, whenever their collective cash reserves would fall below $10,000, another death would occur. It would only occur when they had less than 10,000 bucks. Goodwin began searching harder uh, for more evidence, you know, something to charge Lou with, desperate to prevent another death. Uh, Goodwin's investigation would prove extremely difficult, unfortunately. Although he had the financial records, he has no police reports, victims, or even a real name to look up with, you know, with Lou. And then later in 2007, Goodwin's detective work will be interrupted when he's placed on a task force against the Crips gang. During his time on the task force, Goodwin will tell a coworker, Detective Clint Snyder, all he knows about Castro and the mysterious group on the compound. Fun fact about Snyder, he was one of the Wichita detectives who helped hunt down the BTK killer. And now Snyder will help Goodwin catch Daniel Perez, giving him various tips on how to nab him. Uh, but Goodwin will have to wait thanks to that new assignment. Uh, but you know who didn't have to wait? This is pretty fucking cool. You know who stepped in and busted Daniel Perez single-handedly? Take one guess. I bet you got it right. Dog the Bounty Hacker. In the season one premiere of the Sure to Be Hit on AMG this fall, Dog the Bounty Hacker, world's most elite MIT-educated hacker, takes down Daniel Perez with nothing but an old Dell desktop, some AOL dial-up, and some bleach blonde wits. Starting with crank calls, escalating to doxing Lou Castro's real identity, then raiding the compound, kicking indoors, and lecturing Daniel Perez about the dangers of methamphetamines. Even though I'm pretty sure he never touched meth, nothing gets past Dog the Bounty Hacker. Even when he has a hard time seeing his Dell screen at night because he still has his Oakleys on in a dark room. He's almost 70, his eyes ain't what they used to be, but he's still Dog the Bounty Hacker. 
It's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the code the dog can chew up or... We're, we're still working on a better tagline. Dog, the bounty hacker. Tuesdays, 8 p.m. Central Time, this summer on AMG. Obvious JK. Uh, good one would have to wait. Uh, thanks to his new assignment. And, you know, thanks to not being helped by Dog the Bounty Hacker. Uh, March 1st, 2007. <laughs> Perez commits count of rape. Th- that part's not funny. I was laughing about the Dog the Bounty Hacker. It was a poor time laugh. He commits a count of rape he'll fa- be found guilty of a few years later at his trial. This inf- incident provides further evidence of how crazy Perez was. Per testimony, at 2 a.m., Sarah woke up Emily, told her to get dressed, go outside to the pool house because Lou was angry. Lou and Catherine, inside the building when they arrive, he grabs the girls by their throats, threatens to kill them, makes all three women undress, points a gun at them, shoots near them, shoots a computer tower near them, tells them to go to his bedroom. There, he forces Emily and Sarah to get on the bed, makes Catherine stand in the corner and watch. He rapes both Emily and Sarah with a beer bottle, forces Catherine to drink from the beer bottle. Fucking maniac, monster. Then he makes Catherine leave the room, continues to rape Sarah and Emily. And how would he later rationalize this horror? Same as he always did. It wasn't him doing it. It was the angels. Uh, damn you, Arthur. Why do you do things like that? He, he was like the cult leader version of Jeff Dunham. I didn't say that horrible thing. <laughs> the, the puppet did. The, the jalapeno did. Uh, right? Just, you know, you pull that deflection off and you can get away with anything. I, I didn't rape anyone with a beer bottle. Arthur did. He did it. Not me. I hate it. I'm sorry. This dirty angel traumatizes both. Yeah, in mid-September 2008, about a week before Jennifer's death, Lou sits Sarah down, tells her it's Jennifer's time to go now, that she's next in line to die. Money's getting low. Someone's got to go. I wonder if he actually said shit like that with a big grin on his face, you know, and then just followed up with, JK, uh, no, just kidding. But for real, you have to die though. Well, one of the angels said so. Amber, I think. Uh, also in attendance at this dark meeting are Emily and Catherine. He allegedly told Catherine she needed to step up if she didn't want to also die. And then after this meeting, Lou rapes both Sarah and Emily because why not add more darkness to this fucked up tale? Uh, the night before Jennifer dies, Sarah's, Sarah approaches her mom and tells her, I can't live without you. I don't want you to go anywhere. Jennifer reassures Sarah she's not going anywhere. She'll always be there for her daughters. And then the next day, Jennifer dies. September 22nd, 2008, Jennifer Hudson dies in a car crash. She's 48. According to eyewitnesses, she seemed to blatantly, intentionally swerve her car into the oncoming traffic lane just in time to collide head-on with a big-ass gravel truck. And this lifetime seatbelt wearer not wearing her seatbelt. She's ejected from the vehicle, dies almost instantly. She goes to the windshield. Fucker did it again. Dark wizard talks another person to taking themselves out. Remember way back when, when I said that Mona may have intentionally helped crash that plane she was on with her daughter and her fiancé? This dude was an evil Jedi, just killing people with Jedi mind tricks. Uh, the day Jennifer dies, Emily calls her before her class started or had called her. Jennifer didn't answer. Emily remembers feeling angry about her mom ignoring the call, doesn't think anything of it. Uh, about 30 minutes into taking her test, she was pulled out of class, given the news. How terrible. Lou called Sarah, told her Jennifer was in an accident, wouldn't tell her anything else. Sarah screamed into the phone because she knew what was really going on. Uh, she screamed, what did you do to my mom? She knew Jennifer would not be coming back from the other side. She would later say, like Lou always promised, because Trish and Brian never came back. Everyone at Angel's Landing is confused by Jennifer's death. She had just purchased a dog, seemed happy with her life. Sarah and Emily both believed, you know, Lou could, uh, had somehow convinced their mom to commit suicide. Fucking worm. You got in her head. It's like a walking, talking computer virus that corrupted, you know, brain files. Jennifer's life insurance payout was over a million dollars. Sources don't specify who the beneficiary was other than alluding to it being another cult member. Towards the end of 2008, Sarah and a friend go to Club Rodeo. She meets future husband, Daniel McGrath. The two quickly fall in love. 
Sarah begins to slowly reveal details of the horror she has gone through over the years. And Daniel will soon help dog the bounty hacker. No, will help Detective Goodwin take an evil motherfucker down. Daniel was a member of the National Guard. He began to visit Sarah at Angel's Landing often after they met. At first, he thought like many of the Angel's Landing, you know, it seemed like a nice place. When he met Lou, though, he didn't like him. He thought he seemed too standoffish. He thought it was weird how many women on the compound, you know, were around him compared to men. And then after he met Sarah's younger sister, Emily, just a teenager, he noticed how she always sat next to Lou and how Lou was always touching her in ways he felt were inappropriate, you know, rubbing on her leg, not outright molestation, but weird, not okay. He felt even before Sarah told him what she'd gone through, like he had to do something and he started trying to gather evidence. He started trying to get, you know, he kept a real close eye on Lou, waiting for him to slip up, do something blatantly illegal. He paid attention to that see something, say something rule. And he'll, and he'll help with the investigation later. On November 10th, 2008, Goodwin and a colleague go to Angel's Landing under the ruse of investigating some burglaries that have been happening around town. At the advice of Detective Snyder, he hands Castro a set of glossy photos trying to get him to unknowingly leave a fingerprint, but that fucking son of a bitch won't take the bait. He's careful to never touch photos with his fingertips. He wasn't dumb in some ways, unfortunately. He held them with his palms, dumping them on a table, using his fingernails to move them around. He gave them his name, but not his ID. Instead, he gave them a fake social security number. This wasn't enough to charge him with anything substantial. In March of 2009, Lou abruptly moves to Columbia, Tennessee, small city of around 40,000 just outside of Nashville, about 45 miles from downtown Nashville, with Morgan, Alice, and new member Blake. No info on this Blake character. Just another person who fell for Perez's bullshit. Uh, somebody planned on, you know, uh, making take a life insurance policy out and taking him out when the time was right, I'm sure. Uh, Catherine stayed with Emily and Nora in Wichita so they could finish out the school year. Then the three joined Perez in Tennessee in June of 2009. The group sold the houses in Wichita, made $400,000 in profit. Sarah stays behind with her future husband. Uh, she still hasn't uh, told him, though, what Perez has done to her. Not everything. Not the worst of it. And, uh, you know, hasn't told him what she what he had done to Emily and some of the others. In April of 2009, Perez purchases a large home in Columbia with Morgan, his daughter, Alice, Emily. The house costs about $400,000. Puts it under the name of two acquaintances. Lou tells Emily they're, they're all moving for her. They're moving closer to Vanderbilt, the college she wanted to attend. Lou also explains, Lou also explains, excuse me, to Emily that he wants to change his name to Joe Venegas now, and he needs some documents to establish a new identity in Tennessee. The angels told him that he needed a new identity. Daniel will later recall an incident after this move where Lou calls Sarah and starts screaming at her over the phone. He took the phone from Sarah, told Lou not to call her anymore. Daniel now finally asks Sarah if Lou had ever sexually abused her. Uh, he was suspicious. She uh, says yes. She had been sexually abused all those years. When Sarah falls asleep a few hours later, Daniel logs on to the FBI's website, sends an email that will change everything. Fucking hail Nimrod. About time we got some good news out of this crazy story. December 29, 2009, Daniel McGrath writes an email to the FBI revealing all the info he collected about the group, his concern about the crimes Lou may have committed. This email happens to time out with Detective Goodwin wrapping up uh, his time on the Crips Task Force. Goodwin and Detective Snyder, that BTK guy, had just been assigned to the U.S. Attorney's Office to focus on financial investigations. Everything's lining up. Now FBI Special Agent Sullivan is calling, asking Goodwin if he can send him a fax. Uh, he sends him the, you know, the email that Sarah's boyfriend had messaged in. Goodwin now has the lead he needs, inside access to someone who knows what's going on in this group. A few days later, early January 2010, Goodwin and Sullivan interview Daniel. They learn Lou is now going by the name of Joe Venegas in Columbia, Tennessee. Uh, they learn that he's living in a house with five people and disturbing that he has just taken out a life insurance policy on his baby daughter, Alice. His own flesh and blood. Little baby. Cold shit. This angel doesn't give a fuck. Uh, Goodwin, Snyder, and Sullivan do more investigating now. Find a license plate registered to Joe Venegas. Then they also obtain security camera footage from a local bank 
where a guy named Joe Venegas, who looks exactly like Luke Castro, sets up a new account. And setting up a new bank account under a fake-ass name is identity fraud. That's a federal offense. Now they can arrest this piece of shit. Get some fingerprints. Find out who he really is. April 21st, 2010, Lou Castro is arrested in Columbia, Tennessee. Hail Nimrod. Praise Bojangles. He's pumped. His tail's wagging like crazy. A search warrant's issued at 8.10 a.m. Detective Goodwin, part of the team that arrests him, that had to have felt great. When they approach the house in Tennessee, they call him Joe Venegas. He corrects him, saying, like, no, I'm Lou Castro. Then he's arrested, charged with aggravated identity theft, fraudulent use of a social security number. Inside the house, they find 11 guns, two wallets with IDs for Lou Castro and Joe Venegas, and a social security card and a birth certificate for Joe Venegas. No idea how he attained, obtained all that. Maybe dark web. He never said how he got all those fake documents. Maybe, maybe the angels, you know, just uh, made them for him. That seems like the kind of thing that evil angels do, make fake IDs or something. Uh, Detective Goodwin calls Emily, who's in school nearby, tells her that she needs to come home. He informs her Lou has been arrested. She will not tell him anything, though, incriminating about Lou when they question her. She's still too scared. That monster raised her, brainwashed her for years. It's going to take a lot more than one round of questioning for her to say anything. Lou slash Joe slash Daniel slash Angel Fuckface McGee also not giving up any info. Even after a six-hour interview, he won't, he won't crack. Uh, he just pleads guilty to one of the two charges against him, and he's actually booked into prison as John Doe. John Doe is sentenced to two years in prison. They still don't know. He's in prison now, and they still don't know who he is. But they do take his fingerprints, you know? They took that when they brought him in. But, you know, his prints, uh, they can't find a match in the system. Goodwin now dedicates himself, you know, even further to nailing who this piece of shit is. Uh, he has two years to do it. He does not want Castro ever to get out of prison. Detective Goodwin and Snyder and Special Agent Sullivan go on over the next several months to interview 85 different people, trying to get dirt on this dirty angel. No one is very willing to talk, but they do learn more than they knew before. They learn about a few other aliases, some of which were the three evil angel nonsense, you know, he claimed would take over his body. Uh, the one really good lead they, they get from an interview is in May 2010, Goodwin interviews Patricia's mom, Rosalinda Gomez, and she gives them his real name, Daniel Perez. Using his real name to search, they find his old criminal record, at least part of it, from the 90s, see that his records were hard to find because local authorities thought Daniel Perez was dead. Now they head back to Kansas, confront Perez with this new info. He still refuses to admit it's him. Oh, well, they don't need him to admit it now. They definitively match his prints with the old Perez prints. Then they travel to Beeville, Texas, obtain more police reports on that sexual assault from 96-97. Also, after exposing more of Lou's lies, they now get Sarah and Emily to talk after being assured nothing will happen to them, that they have you know new crimes to punish Perez with. They finally started giving police the info they so desperately needed to put him away for good. Goodwin coordinates the first interview with Sarah to discuss what really happened at Angel's Landing. That interview lasted close to four hours. Then they interviewed Emily, who gave the final evidence to put Lou in jail for the rest of his life. She was reluctant at first, but after Lou's arrest in 2010, uh, she had gone to prison uh, to visit him and they'd had an argument. And this is what led her to tell everything. This is so crazy. When she went to visit him prior to her, you know, uh, visit with the detectives, she noticed he looked healthy and well, even though for years he had been telling her that if he didn't have regular sex with a young, pure girl, he would quickly die. And, and I mentioned that part of his insanity, right? It's hard to keep track of it all. After realizing he was a liar and his raping had nothing to do with angels and staying alive or whatever other bullshit he told her, she finally agrees to tell Goodwin everything. This guy was incredible when it came to getting people to totally believe the dumbest shit ever. Too bad he was such a perf, right? With his salesmanship skills, he could have made way more money and say Amway than he did with life insurance claims, right? My name is Daniel Three Angels Perez and I need you to bow down to the good God Amway. 
maker and seller of divine and affordable home goods, nutrition, and beauty supplies. Like the new Artistry Skin Nutrition Hydrating Gel Cream, only $36.50, which sounds like a lot, but it's over 50% less than almost all leading competitors. And I'm back. Emily now told investigators that Lou made her lie to police about Patricia's death. She told him that she'd heard a splash, followed by a scream, then saw him soaking wet and gasping for breath. She eventually told uh, him about all the sexual abuse she went through at the hands of Lou as well. Thanks to Emily, the case is now a murder investigation. Goodwin frequently calls the prison to ensure Perez is not going to be released early, right? He's rushing to build up a good case against him. On September 1st, 2011, Patricia's death is now reclassified officially as a homicide. On September 2nd, the murder and various sex crimes charges are filed under a seal. The charge will become public in January 2012. His charges were first-degree murder, 10 counts rape, 10 counts aggravated criminal sodomy, three counts aggravated assault, 11 counts false information, one count criminal threat. In January, the charges against Perez become official. The prosecution files the charges against him while he's in prison, leading to his immediate rearrest once his two-year sentence ends. His trial will begin a few years later, starting in 2015. On January 19th, 2012, Perez makes his first court appearance. Uh, the court part of this, by the way, usually is like, uh, I think it's kind of like the most boring part of these episodes. It's the most interesting to me. It, Entertainment-wise, there is some weird shit coming up. Uh, his defense is legendarily bad. Uh, one of the first witnesses to testify <laughs> at his trial is the guy who owned a remote-controlled airplane store. Fucking love this detail. Let's make this weird story even weirder. George Napple, owner of the hangar on West Street in Wichita, perfect name for a model airplane store owner, owner uh, testifies that he sold numerous toy planes to Lou Castro over several years. He spoke of extravagant spending on airplanes, <laughs> saying he started spending money like a drunken sailor, tearing the hell out of them, and then buying some more. He spent a ton of money on those things. He said that Lou frequently ordered planes that cost $15,000 or more each. <laughs> and that each time Lou would enter the store, he had an entourage with him that often included younger women and a teenager, Emily, who he called baby girl. Gross. Also, why does Perez buy a bunch of toy planes with life insurance money he gathered from people he either killed or talked to and killed themselves? Money that also allowed him to continue living as a pedophile. Why does that make it even more creepy to me? Like if his hobby was collecting like, I don't know, 1930s movies posters, not as creepy. Kind of interesting, but don't really care. Uh, if he was way into expensive whiskey, I don't really care. But toy planes, super creepy. Roughly as creepy or maybe creepier than him being like a model train enthusiast or super into like yo-yoing. It just adds to such an odd and disturbing overall portrait, right? He talked people into killing themselves. He warned people to not make Amber the angel of death mad. He blamed raping underage girls on Arthur the angel. He told at least one of his victims that if he didn't have sex on a regular basis with a young, pure girl, girl he would die. He told some people he was a thousand years old and he could bring the rain. He told some people he could speak with animals and know when people died. He really liked to party, have some beers, drive sports cars, ATVs, and really liked model airplanes. Like maybe more than everything else. Man, talk about marching to the beat of your own drummer. Uh, on May 12th, 2012, the preliminary hearings for Perez's case continued. Sarah testifies about how Perez forced her to have sex with him hundreds of times, gave testimony about the shooting from 2007, she testified about her involvement in Patricia's death. Osborne or Osborne asked Sarah if Perez was drunk the night of 2007, that shooting. Sarah responded, probably he drank a lot. Osborne's a defense attorney. Uh, Susan, mother of the girl Perez, had Sarah, had Sarah filmed naked to see if she had a birthmark. She spoke about how Perez tried to persuade them to live at the compound. He told her, I'm here to help people. It's all about the children, which it was, just not in the way that he was making it seem. Uh, Susan said she had reservations about living there because there was too much drinking going on. Daughter Claire, only eight when she met Perez, now 14, testified about how Perez hugged her too often. 
and that she saw him kiss and touch a teen girl. The family also suspicious of how many people died at the compound. And that was the main reason they didn't live with the group. Interesting reasoning. Hey, hon, should we move on to Perez's compound? I don't know. He makes out with a lot of teen girls when we're there and he looks at me too much and he hugs me often, you know, and that, that bothers me. Yeah, I don't, I don't like that either. It bothers, bothers me too, but it doesn't bother me that much. Hey, I don't like all the drinking though, but I still think we should move there. Yeah, but what about all the people that keep dying? Oh yeah, I forgot. You know what? You're right. The messing around with the young girls and the drinking and the deaths when you add it all up, that's when it becomes too much. Uh, on May 30, 2012, Emily gives testimony at the preliminary hearing. Uh, she speaks about her involvement in Patricia's murder and uh, the sexual abuse she endured. Uh, he told her how Perez, 51, uh, when she last lived with him, or she told her, uh, told her that his body was the body of a 30-year-old man. And he needed to have, you know, again, sex with young pure, pure girls to live. Uh, she revealed he most often forced her to engage in oral sex with him, but she had been also raped hundreds of times. She didn't really understand what was happening when she was younger. She spoke about how he would call himself by different names, how the names correlated with different personalities, the names of the angels, all that fucking jibber-jabber. As Emily grew older, she started to understand she was being raped, but she kept allowing it to happen because it was all she knew and because he kept threatening to kill her fucking family if she told the truth. Alice Osborne, Perez's defense attorney, points out that Emily made a choice to go with Perez to Tennessee and asked her why she never spoke to counselors if all this was happening. Emily said it was because Lou was against counseling. Kind of a gross defense attorney move here. Uh, when they moved, Emily was just, you know, 17, maybe just turned 18, finishing up high school, legally an adult, but not financially independent or prepared to live on her own, especially after all the grooming and abuse she went through. I know it was Osborne's job to defend Perez, but come on, that's, that's fucking low blow. Also found this interesting, doing a little bit of digging on Osborne. In 2016, Alice Osborne left criminal defense, switched to the other team, criminal prosecution. She is currently the chief attorney who supervises the division that prosecutes crimes involving sex offense and domestic violence in Sedgwick County, Kansas. And I have to wonder how much defending a piece of shit like Perez pushed her towards fighting for the other side. Uh, on June 7th, 2012, Perez was ordered to stand trial for the murder of Patricia Hughes as well as other crimes. His defense argued there wasn't enough evidence to put him on the trial. Uh, this argument was quickly dismissed. I imagine the judge muttering something like, get the fuck out of here. That's weak shit. Uh, the trial would go forward with the prosecution to be led by DA, Mark Bennett, and the defense led by Alice Osborne. But they would have to wait three years due to various boring legal delays. February 4th, 2015, Daniel Perez's criminal trial begins. Uh, the prosecution and defense present their opening statements. Kim Parker, chief deputy district attorney, gives the prosecution's opening statement. She describes Perez as manipulative, violent, with, an ap with a sexual appetite for children. He was someone who persuaded his followers to take out expensive life insurance policies after which he staged their deaths to fund his luxurious lifestyle. Life at the commune was characterized by domination and control. She stated there were multiple instances of sexual violence, multiple instances of physical violence. And then later she ended with, this is a case that will take a while. I will give you a lay of the land, but the real accounting will come from the witness stand, from the mouths of those involved. And then Alice Osborne, that defense attorney, gave her opening statement saying, three naughty angels did it. To judge them is to judge God, and to judge God is to burn in hell. Defense rests. And then Perez was released. Now he's back in Nashville, living on a compound that doubles as a sleepaway preschool. JK, that would be the worst. No, Osborne uh, presented Perez as a welcoming person, a friend to his community. His house was an open home to friends and police. She spoke about how he donated $19,000 to the city for a new police vehicle. Yes, she admitted. Perez was attracted to younger women, but these women were always of legal age and consensual partners. His defense argued that his followers conspired together to blame him for the false documents once police started investigating them. She said that most of his relationships with the women in the commune were not like a father figure. Uh, you know, um, kind of like a big brother. 
Uh-huh. She said that the women he had sex with were legal age and consenting. He never had sex with underage girls. He did share a bedroom with 11-year-old Emily, but they never shared a bed. Even him just sharing a room with her is so fucking creepy. Doesn't make him look innocent. I, I think she knew that she had to just, she, she didn't have much to work with here, right? She, she, she didn't have much to work with for the defense. No, 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 he's not a pedophile. pedophile. He just, you know, he, he shares uh, bedrooms with kids. He, you know what? He's a lot like Michael Jackson, but he just doesn't have the musical talent. And, he's, and there's lots of weird angel talk. Mo- moving on. Uh, she admitted that when Emily was of legal age, they did have sex, uh, but that it was her decision. And then she continued to paint a really weak defense picture because again, there's just no way to make him look good. She said that, yes, Perez had no job, but come on, he did spend six years building up the compound a little bit. She said that the women in the group were in charge of the money. They bought the homes and the life insurance policies. It wasn't his fault. A lot of people died around him. She said Perez never asked anyone to make false claims on his applications or on applications for credit cards. Uh, you know, what they did is his job directed by women was just to scope out different cars and find the good deals. She said that he didn't even own the cars, didn't even know where the money came from. No, he's just happy to be there. Uh, he told the jury, or uh, she told the jury that when Patricia died, he was at a Wichita car dealership. You know, he's there for 30 minutes when he received the call from a neighbor who told him there was emergency vehicles at Angel's Landing. Emily did see him wet and out of breath, yes, but that was that was on the 24th. That was the day after Patricia died. That's what she closed on. That was the best thing she had. Yeah, some of that stuff happened, but like the next day, <laughs> I, ma- I imagine her finally just throwing up her hands in the air at the end of her de- defense opening speech and just being like, I don't, I fuck, I don't know. Come on, look what I'm working with. It's hard. It's hard to defend someone who's so fucking guilty. It's so hard. Uh, the defense didn't have a leg to stand on. The prosecution will bury them. Uh, investigators find the tapes of, or they found the tapes of the naked eight-year-old Claire amongst Perez's things, right? After his arrest, Sarah and Emily testify about all the sexual abuse. Other former followers like Catherine, they corroborate all the stories uh, or, you know, the stories of like Perez being violent, carrying a gun. I mean, Catherine did witness uh, at least a couple of the the rapes, um, you know, like threatening followers, sometimes shooting near them and during drunken, drunken rambling speeches about his angel jibber jabber. Catherine testified uh, that she was just 15 when she met Perez in North Dakota, that they had sex. That she believed uh, his name was was uh, Lou at that time. They had special powers because he once made it rain, <laughs> supposedly. You know, lots of testimony against him. According to various cult members, Perez would decide who took out the various life insurance policies, how much they were worth, who was the beneficiary. You know, he was never a beneficiary, but he did get access to the money in an account once the member received it. You know, everyone talked about how he uh, told them he was a seer whose body was inhabited by angels. The prosecution brought up a broken hair clip on the bottom of the pool related to Trisha's drowning. This hair clip uh, helped prove that Perez broke it while drowning Patricia. Chris Sperry, a forensic pathologist, testified that Patricia's injuries were consistent with someone gripping the top of their head, of, you know, of her head. There was also small bruises on her body not consistent with her slipping and hitting her head. She was violently held underwater. She fought back. She did not want to die as he'd ordained. Uh, Maggie, the girl Perez raped way back in 1996 in Texas, she came and testified, testified that when she was 11, she and her mom, you know, uh, Mary visited Perez in Texas. When her mom left her alone with him, he touched her inappropriately. Perez told her he had magic powers. Uh, use those magic powers or, you know, claims of magic powers to convince her to perform sexual acts, then threatened to kill her uh, or and kill her family if she said anything, but she reported him anyways. She told her mom what happened. You know, they filed charges in 1996. The jurors learned that this is why he fled Texas in 1997 and on and on and on. Basically, every character, you know, you met today who didn't already die testified against Perez and painted the picture you heard today. 
Most of the info I laid out was taken from court testimony. Then on February 12, 2015, here's where it gets good. <laughs> Perez testifies to his own defense. And it really, really, really does not go well. <laughs> uh, learning, learning what he said here made me uh, think again that he was for sure an idiot. Like he was really good at ruthlessly manipulating a very small group of people, really open to a bunch of angel jibber-jabber and kids, you know. Uh, but overall, stupid and crazy. He was on the stand for over four hours. And the following statements we cherry-picked from those four hours are not a joke. He actually said this shit in court as if it were reasonable things to say that might get him off uh, <laughs> and free. When asked, did he take on the alias Lou Castro? He said, yes, he said he suffered memory loss after being beaten close to death by a group of un uh, uniformed men. He said, from what he's been able to piece together, this beating took place right before he was scheduled for a sentencing with a plea agreement you know, on the child sex crimes he committed in Texas you know, back in 1996, 1997. And, and when he woke up in the hospital later, he was severely injured and already on some sort of medication. And then when he left the hospital, knowing nothing, uh, a woman recognized him for some reason and called him Lou Castro. So he just assumed that was his name and he just went with it. And that woman was Patricia Gomez. He testified that Patricia was his friend and sometimes lover. And then he met her while dancing out in Beeville, Texas. Beeville is about an hour inland from Aranzas Pass. So, you know, he just, he just wandered aimlessly an hour inland, not knowing anything at all. And just found himself at a dance, not knowing who the fuck he is. <laughs> Makes sense. And then this Patricia lady sees him and is like, hey, you're Lou Castro. And he's like, okay. And then he says that Patricia took him to either Brownsville, Texas, or maybe Mexico to recover from his injuries further. He, he can't remember. He says, I, I didn't recollect anything at the time, but I knew that I knew her. And he also said that for some reason, Patricia allegedly did know his real name, but wouldn't tell him what it was. <laughs> and would only call him Lou Castro. And that then he and Patricia moved to Corpus Christi. And then they moved to various other places. And over the years, Patricia would just, I don't know, just kind of invite people into this some sort of cult thing that was happening around him, but he didn't really know what was going on. And he just rambled on nonsensically with this weird, like, I, I took a fake name because, you know, I got I got beaten into amnesia. And then the lady, you know, called me the random name who knew me, knew my real identity, wouldn't tell me. And I was like, well, okay, whatever. And I just rolled with it for, you know, over well over a decade and just watched her recruit people into this cult thing. I, I, I guess I was kind of in, you know, if you really get down to the bottom of it. I picture the judge asking the prosecution, are you fucking going to let this happen? Are you going to, you gonna, will you please object to this nonsense? And then the prosecution just says, no, 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 we're good. We're good. This is fucking great. This is gold. I just sent out for popcorn. I'm looking forward to the rest of the show, your honor. And the show does get better. Uh, then he's asked, how did he sustain his luxury lifestyle? Oh, this is so dumb. He says that he had a red duffel bag full of cash. Come on, you know, come on. How did I do it? Well, I had a red duffel bag full of cash. You know how those things are. Sometimes you find one and you're like, that's awesome. No, he says that Trish gave him this duffel bag right after he <laughs> lost his memory. And he says the money probably came from selling a house and some cars in his previous life. I don't, who knows? I can't remember, you know? This is so great. How did you pay for your lifestyle, Prez? I had, a, I had a red duffel bag full of cash that Trish gave me and I spent the money, you know, for like over 10 years. And, you know, I just never bothered asking her where the fuck it came from. L listen, I don't like to rock the boat. I was just happy to have a bag of cash. I was raised to not look a bag of cash gift in the mouth or whatever that, however that goes. I just didn't ask, you know, because that's how I was raised. I think I was raised that way. I don't, rem I don't remember. It's hard to remember things. Oh my God. It's, it's like he was hoping the courtroom was just as desperate and gullible as some of the people he tricked. Then his defense gets even dumber still. Now he brings up his scar tissue penis defense. <laughs> he was asked about some scar tissue on his penis. Where did it come from? And he was asked this because this was a big part of the defense. 
was to prove he couldn't rape because he had a scar on his dick. I'm not kidding. I picture his defense attorney, Osborne, begging him to please, please don't insist on using this defense. It's embarrassing. Now, I picture her saying like, Daniel, stop. No, come on, please. I'm trying to get people to take me seriously. I know you're going to say so many dumb things, no matter what I tell you, because you're an idiot. But please, please shut the fuck up about the scar tissue dick defense. And he was like, no way, Jose. My angel Arthur, or maybe Amber, tells me my scar tissue dick defense is the key to my freedom. Perez actually tells the jury <laughs> that he had an injury in the 90s. He had an injury in the 90s, even though he can't remember what happened in the early 90s. That left scar tissue on his wing. Can't remember his name, but he does remember that someone jacked his dick up in the early 90s. And he claims that this injury made him unable to rape anyone. You know, he still have sex, but only consensual sex because of this scar tissue injury. No doctor backed this up because it's one of the dumbest or maybe the dumbest I couldn't have raped anyone defenses of all time. What? Rape? Me? No. <laughs> no, I can't. I can, I can only have gentle sex with very lubricated and extremely receptive and inviting vaginas and or mouths. I mean, look at it. Look at my weenus. Look at that scar. You know how ouchy it feels to put my scar pain into a dry no thank you hole? Touch it. Come on, touch it. Poke, poke it a little bit. Okay, I'll do it. You know what? I'll flick it. Ow! Owie! Wowie! That hurts so much. Look at the tears in my eyes when I flick my peen scar. I'm crying. Thrusting that scar peen in a dry no thank you front butt. Gee willikers, I plumb pass out from the pain. God damn it, he's fucking stupid. Uh, then when asked why he would call, why he would call himself a seer, he said even more dumb shit. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, no, 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 I, I never really called myself a seer. I call myself special, referring to some special education I received in school. People just misheard and misunderstood me. <laughs> I would love to see someone use that kind of misheard logic in like an attempted murder defense. What? She's saying that I said, and I quote, I'm gonna fucking kill you, bitch, tonight you die. That's what she says. No way. What I said was, I'm gonna, I'm gonna thrill you, sis. Tonight you dine. I was offering to cook her dinner, which is also why I was holding a butcher knife. Come on. Uh, when Perez was asked, did he tell Patricia Hughes she would be reincarnated? <laughs> he said, and I quote, no, we watched a lot of movies. <laughs> this guy is the king of lame defenses. He acted like it was just something she misunderstood about a movie. He went on, this is a picture of the prosecutor. Hey, did you tell Patricia Hughes that she'd be reincarnated if she killed herself so you could get her life insurance money? No, never, never, ever. But when I think about it, okay, okay, I think I know what happened. We watched that Chris Rock movie, Down to Earth, where he plays a struggling comic who gets hit by a truck and then takes over uh, the body of a rich white dude. You know what? That's what everyone's probably talking about. That right there. Uh, after six days of presenting witness testimony, the prosecutors rested their case in the morning of February 12th. Uh, the defense rested their case uh, after all the dumb bullshit you just heard. <laughs> Perez was facing life without parole for the murder of Trish, numerous counts of sexual abuse of a child under 14, another kind of sexual exploitation, exploitation of a child, etc. And on February 18, 2015, Perez is finally convicted for his crimes. His incredible, well-thought-out, plausible defenses did not let him get away with anything. His three angels let him down, especially Amber. Uh, the jury deliberated for just three hours uh, in order to find him guilty on all those charges, which is not much time for, the, for that many charges and how serious they were. They were like, fuck this guy. Let's hang out. Let's have some snacks for a couple hours and then fuck him. March 24th, 2015, Perez, now 55, sentenced to life in prison for Trisha's murder plus an extra 406 months tacked on for other charges. 
These sentences will run consecutively, which means he will spend at least 80 years in prison before he's eligible for parole. He'll be 130 when that time comes. Or like 1130. And he'll probably be fine, you know, because he can live so long, unless he's telling the truth about the young vagina keeping him alive. Then he should, you know, he should already be dead. At a sentencing hearing, poor Emily made a powerful statement saying, I was 10 when my childhood was over. While other 10-year-olds were riding bikes or playing with dolls, I was laying naked in a bed with a pillow over my head, just waiting for it to be over. My God. While other 13-year-olds were getting boyfriends and holding hands, I was holding on to my secret, losing the people I loved one by one. When other 16-year-olds were experiencing the freedom of learning how to drive and planning parties with their friends, I was planning my own death every day when I drove to school. Holy shit. Uh, Since 2015, Perez has been serving his sentence at the Lansing Correctional Facility, Lansing, Kansas, Kansas, on the edge of uh, Leavenworth, Kansas. As of 2020, uh, sisters Sarah and Emily uh, had resolved their old conflicts caused by Perez and, you know, had a close relationship. We're also close with her father. Sarah now is happily married to that Daniel McGrath in Wichita. Emily is living in South Carolina, working as a paralegal. She wants to help others who are in situations similar to her and what she went through. Detective Goodwin, the guy who would not give up on busting Perez, has become good friends with Sarah. And on that nice note, let's hop on out of today's timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Cult. 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 Kind of. Weird cult. This cult didn't really have any theology, but they did leave their families to go live on a compound. Uh, They did think he had secret spiritual knowledge, supernatural powers. He was definitely their leader. He seems to have had so much control over a few of them that he talked them into dying for him. That is pretty culty. Uh, He was a lazy cult leader. No robes, no ceremonies, no theology, just a drunk guy who rambles about being possessed by angels who tells you he can bring animals back from the dead and make it rain and shit. No church, just ATVs, sports cars, you know, beer and fucking model airplanes. Uh, And quite a bit of death for a small group. In 2001, a plane crash killed follower Mona Griffith, her fiance, Jim Chase, and her 12-year-old daughter, Lindsay Griffith. 2003, longtime first follower, Patricia Hughes, 26, drowned at the compound. 2006, Patricia's husband, follower Brian Hughes, killed when a carjack slipped and he was crushed by a car. 2008, follower Jennifer Hudson died in a car crash. How did he pull off what he pulled off? Former follower and victim Jennifer Hudson's older daughter, Sarah, says that cult leaders like Perez are sneaky in their abuse. She says, I think that in my situation, I think that my situation was very uncommon. My mom just kind of accepted all these whimsical things that he would tell her. She was just sucked into it. I don't think it's a very common thing. But I also think that people who are in a cult may not realize they're in a cult until they've been out for a while. I didn't realize I was in a cult until I've been out for a few years. FBI agent Sullivan also shared his thoughts regarding how Perez pulled off what he did, saying he was adept in identifying people who were vulnerable. He would talk and recruit women who were going through difficult times, either through a divorce or a broken home. He would take advantage of people at their absolute worst. I don't think these assessments paint the complete picture, though. This is not something that can happen to anyone. It's not. Unless your parents drag you in, unless you're born in, you do have to choose to join. Plenty of people who end up down their luck do not get lured into a cult. I don't think going through a rough divorce is a good excuse to go through, uh, or to go into, into a cult. And like Jennifer was apparently happily married. And then she met him and then she chose to initiate her divorce and go into this cult. You know, the people who believe Perez's claims uh, chose to believe someone who made just the most outrageous claims that were so easily to identify as being bullshit. And that was a terrible choice. You know, he said he could make it rain. All right, we'll make it rain, motherfucker. He said he could bring animals back from the dead. Okay, well, let's head to an animal shelter. See what you can do. He said he could see the future. All right, so make some specific prediction or fuck off, asshole. This all reminds me of the Q drops from the QAnon bit. 
right? If you choose to believe in foolish claims that consistently don't come true over and over again, what does that make you? Doesn't it make you a fool? So don't be a fool. Don't throw your life away. Don't make that choice. Be more protective of your life and the lives around you, your children. Value them more. What's that old saying? There's a sucker born every minute. I do believe the basic truth of that saying adamantly. There will only be cults for as long as there are people foolish enough to join cults and fall for their bullshit. Bullshit that is sometimes as blatantly stupid as Perez's bullshit. He was not some criminal mastermind, right? He just had no moral qualms in exploiting fools. And again, I'm not talking about the kids. Very different with the kids. They were dragged in. I'm talking about their parents. How sad and totally avoidable for some of them, right? I think about Jennifer in particular. Educate yourself. Ask questions. Don't let yourself be manipulated like others have been. Easier for some with better intellect than others, I know, but these people were not intellectually limited. Jennifer was a successful realtor. Brian, a successful mechanic. No one mentioned any of them being slow in some way mentally. They had full mental faculties and they chose for various reasons to ignore the obvious signs that Perez was full of shit and that he was a pedophile, right? They, they chose to ignore the fact that he has a fucking 11-year-old in the same bed with him. Careful who you trust, Meat Sacks. If someone makes outrageous claims, ask them to prove it. If they can't prove it, tell them to fuck off. Reminds me of get-rich-quick schemes too, right? You, you know, usually when someone is saying something that sounds way too good to be true, it's because it is way too good to be true because they're a fucking con artist. There's a lot of good people in the world, but also a fair amount of unscrupulous motherfuckers who will say whatever they think will work to get you to bend to their dark will in a variety of ways. People who will for sure take advantage of you, possibly lead you to your death. Defend yourself from these dark wizards with some good old critical thinking. Now let's look back at today's dark wizard with today's top five. Takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one in December of 2009, Sarah's boyfriend, Daniel McGrath, stepped up and did what was right. Sent an email to the FBI revealing everything he knew, right? See something, hear something, say something. Little did he know others were already working on the case against Lou Castro, and his letter gave them the big break they needed to pursue things further. Although his letter didn't directly contribute to his charges, if Daniel had never sent that email, Daniel Perez might still be leading a cult and sexually abusing young girls right now. Number two, Perez told his followers he was possessed by three angels, Arthur, Daniel, and Amber. Arthur was sadly not a weird clown, but a cruel angel who often committed acts of violence and sexual abuse. Daniel was kinder, more similar to his persona. He you know, his, uh, put on to make his followers love him, to trick outsiders into thinking they were a big, happy family. Amber was the angel of death, pure evil, would terrify Sarah, Emily, and other members by threatening to send them to purgatory. After Perez was violent or abusive, he would profusely apologize, saying it wasn't him. It was these damn angels. Number three, Cody Griffith believes Perez did something to the plane Jim operated to make it crash, to kill his mom. He did work on airplanes in his past, and perhaps he did something to make it crash so he could collect Mona's life insurance policy. Uh, he was only charged with Patricia's murder, but five other people, four of them cult members, one of them the fiance of a member, Three of them with large life insurance policies died under suspicious circumstances while on the commune or while associated with the commune. Uh, Mona Griffith, Jim Chase, Linda Griffith, or Lindsay Griffith, excuse me, Brian Hughes, Jennifer Hudson, all perhaps dead because of Perez. He only murdered Patricia, but Cody believes, and Sarah and Emily also believe he convinced both Brian and Jennifer to commit suicide. These deaths are still ruled accidents, but family believes Perez was involved in all of them in some way. Number four, because of the dedication of Detective Goodwin, hail Detective Goodwin, uh, who first discovered the mysterious group and their unexplained wealth, Perez is in jail. He could have given up after not being able to find evidence over and over again, but he continued to work the case for almost nine years, gathering what evidence he could, never giving up in his pursuit of justice. Goodwin helped Sarah and Emily overcome their fears of telling the truth, got the info he needed to get a murder trial against Perez, 
putting him in jail for life. Bojangles salutes you. And number five, new info. During the filming of Dateline, Angels and Demons in 2015, Daniel Perez was interviewed. When asked who he was, he says, I'm no one in particular. I'm just me. He now denies ever telling anyone he was a prophet or an angel. Did he ever uh, claimed any of those things? He, you know, he denies uh, claiming that, you know, he uh, had uh, sex with young women, telling them that they would keep them alive. Uh, he denies uh, having anyone call him Lou after being charged with the sex crimes. He says he left Texas because he was working an illegal job, moving money for his new bosses. The money came from illegal operations. He's the victim. That detail never came up in court because it's likely another lie. He claims uh, he still has a bunch of money from his former employer employers, uh, close to $500,000. I'm sure he's kind of dangling out th that out there, thinking that maybe it'll get him free, somehow get him some kind of plea deal. Uh, he denies literally everything he did. And he gets very angry when accused of making, uh, you know, uh, Sarah film the little girl, for example. He got, a, he got angry about that on that uh, show, saying that they found the video and a picture of the little girl are on Sarah's computer. Uh, when asked about the repeated rapes, he says, we were just having fun. We were just having fun. That might be an even worse defense than the scarred dick defense. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The Angels Landing Cult has been sucked. Uh, we, we may have used the most sources ever <laughs> for this one. Or the, yeah, the most like randomly hodgepodge together. Uh, it's crazy to me. As, as insane as the story is, no one's written like a definitive book or anything about this yet. I wonder if they will someday. Uh, these maniacs continue to fascinate me. You need to be amazed by the lies some people choose to swallow. I oh, mean, fuck Daniel Perez, right? I hope other inmates in prison are treating him like he treated so many young girls. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making time suck. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Zach Flannery, Bit Elixir, Logan the Art Warlock, Keith running badmagicmerch.com and the socials. Thanks to Liz Hernandez, our all-seeing eyes, for all their work on the socials and emails. And big thanks to Olivia Lee for taking the research lead on this one I had to watch a lot of shows, had to piece a lot of things together from like boring court testimony. Well done. Uh, thanks to Beefsteak and the Mod Squad on Discord. Next Monday on Time Suck, on Time Suck, excuse me. Thanks to the Curiosity of the Space Lizards, we're sucking the topic of crazy U.S. laws. And I cannot wait to share with you how gloriously insane some of this is. Uh, whether it's about regulating sex, acting out legal vengeance, or trying to stop a very specific kind of dumb thing from happening, most of these laws, past and present, pretty stupid. Uh, take, for example, the idea of an Arkansas politician who, in his nearly unmatched hubris, declared that it is illegal for a river, the Arkansas River, to reach a certain height. <laughs> what are you going to do if it goes past? You throw the river in prison? A uh, very misguided man threatening a body of water with legal action. One of the many weird laws coming your way. Join us next week. It's going to be a fun one. To help us sell crazy U.S. laws, uh, maybe you'll discover some crazy laws you are breaking right now without even knowing it. Now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. Okay, so a bunch of, like I said, going to start off with a bunch of Antifa updates. Um, just so I don't forget to say it later. I was thinking about this, but I didn't make any note about my thoughts. Um, you know, part of the reason I did not go hard, I should have gone harder on Antifa, and I'll talk about that here. But part of my hesitation was it's just harder to trace what they have done than it is with QAnon. So it just kind of felt like spreading like a bunch of rumors, which is not what I'm trying to do. But that being said, I did make mistakes. A lot of you pointed them out. Uh, we're going to start with some dis dis uh, some dissent, discerning sucker, critical thinker, name redacted. Gives us more Antifa info than I did. He writes, hey, Dan, I'm a big fan of yours. Have been ever since crazy with capital F. To this day, I'll never forget your joke about ants. I've never written in before, but this time I feel like I had to speak up. 
I listen to your show every Monday, but the episode about Antifa QAnon really bothered me. Throughout the whole episode, you often justified Antifa's actions saying there was some moral right to it or saying that it couldn't be proven that Antifa was behind it and it could possibly have been someone in black framing Antifa. I believe that there may be some people who would want to join for a good cause, but the core ideology of this group is very destructive and they are in truth a terrorist organization. Uh, if your belief is that you will be violent to stop possible violence later on, that's a terrible reason to hurt people and businesses. Also a very dangerous way of thinking. The irony is that Antifa themselves can be seen as fascist. They will force people to see things their way. And if you disagree, they attempt to shut you down with violence or get you canceled. It can lead people to justifying almost any action because something else was possible. Yet you continually said many things they did was understandable, glossed over many details. I live near Portland and the amount of fear and damage that has been done to our community is insane. I'm sorry to take up a ton of your time. I know you're busy. I just think that episode really bothered me. As someone who stands up for the police, freedom of business, I could never support Antifa. Well, thank you, anonymous sucker. As someone who also stands up for the police oftentimes and, and, and freedom of business, I also do not support uh, many of Antifa's actions, some of which will be laid out in other updates. And you're right. When you proclaim that your way is the only right way and anyone who disagrees with you is fascist, you can, in fact, then become fascist yourself. Uh, and I think that will be further illustrated in more of the updates. So sorry for what you saw down in Portland. I know things got fucking crazy there for a while. And uh, yeah, you know, seeing the businesses uh, damaged by Antifa there. Yeah, I, I would I would hate them too. Uh, next up, longtime sucker, awesome sack, James Pitt is disappointed and rightfully so. Let's hear, James writes, Dan, deep dramatic sigh. <laughs> Let me start out by saying that nothing has changed my opinion of you as a person, comic, and podcast host, but holy shit, putting any group of people in the same podcast as QAnon believers would make the other group seem as harmless as preschoolers. At first, I thought this was going to be an assholes versus idiots. Then when you went from barely talking about Antifa to QAnon, I thought, huh, maybe he'll circle back on all the shit Antifa's been doing. Next thing you know, you're reading the Time Sucker updates. Sure, it's great to have a group of people that want to put the hammer down on fascism, but just because you point the finger in a vague direction and scream fascist doesn't make everyone harmed and everything broken and set aflame fascist. What is even fascist anymore? People that claim to be Antifa think they're hammers and everything that's not Antifa are seen as nails. That's a great way to put it. Uh, Charlottesville seems to be the only time a counter-protest against white supremacists seem like a necessary evil by Antifa. But since they're more an ideal than an actual group, then you can say either every protest of multicolored haired people screaming behind black masks and hoodies at anything not pro-communist is entirely Antifa or not Antifa at all. Was the autonomous zone Chaz seized by Antifa and BLM a figment of our imagination? I guess my cousin must have been a fascist when a group of people dressed in black, sporting Antifa logos, kicked in his door, set up camp in his apartment after kicking the shit out of him. The local law enforcement couldn't help him because they weren't allowed in since the mayor decided to side, uh, to side with the protesters. The only thing that saved him was the fact that he was forced into the kitchen where he kept a pistol and was able to hold him off from further harm. He didn't want to hurt anyone, so it was basically a standoff till they took anything of value, sprayed painted swats to guys in his apartment, Zero consequences befell those assholes even after he was able to positively identify all but two of them. Now on to the law enforcement side of things. We, like most agencies, have a media liaison. Their job is to be the spokesman or spokesperson for the police department or sheriff's office. And much like everywhere else, anytime the news inquires about a mass group of people creating a disturbance, for example, a riot, looting, vandalism, they turn their heads when we say all subjects identify as members of the group Antifa. Nobody wants to report that Antifa are hard left terrorists. I know I'm sidetracking on some personal shit here, but man, I can't keep from thinking why put both groups in one podcast? 
One group is a bunch of misinformed, self-proclaimed saviors as long as you think the way they do or else they will assault you and burn down your livelihood. The other group is a bunch of idiots of the internet that can't accept that their guy lost in 2021. I wouldn't tell you to do it different, but I think you went too easy on Antifa. Sorry, not sorry if I fit the idiots of the internet category. Always and forever fan, hail Nimrod, praise the eternal hater of communism, Bojangles. Uh, no, you do not fit the idiots of the internet segment, James. Uh, maybe I do for not remembering Chaz. I honestly am embarrassed that I did not include them. You're right. I should have, I, uh, I should have included them and I should have not put Antifa in the same suck. Holy shit. The Capitol Hill organized protest, um, which is another thing I should have, uh, you know, that was so incredibly ridiculous. That was surreal. And in its own way, as bad as the Capitol insurgency, the media should have reported more on how much lawlessness and, and violence ensues when you remove the police. People on the far left who focus on police brutality, I feel like often forget that with no police, there will be far more brutality. It just won't come from the police. And at the end of the day, you know, shouldn't less brutality carried out by anyone be the goal of a civilized society? So yeah, should have covered more than I did. And thank you for calling me out. Next up, another perspective on why Antifa is more deadly than I portrayed them from OG sucker Erica Stork. Erica writes, Hi, Suckmaster. I listened to the QAnon Antifa suck and the QAnon portion was hilarious and really well done. So thank you for the amazing entertainment there. They truly are some wackadoodles. I want to preface the next part by saying I'm very left-leaning myself. So please don't take this as a biased point of view. I voted for Bernie Sanders twice. I think that you could have done a lot more research on Antifa and all the bad things that they do. While they call themselves anti-fascist, they use a lot of fascist tactics to silence who they label as fascist, even when they are not fascist in the slightest. That's where the problem comes in. They label everyone who isn't as extreme alt-left as they are fascist and will use that to justify violence. Antifa literally thinks the Democratic Party are fascists, which is so obviously untrue. I think you should have paired an Antifa suck with like Proud Boys or a group like that because that would be more equal and opposite. Both groups use their ideology to justify violence and that is not okay. Another thing I think that would have been good to explore much deeper was how Antifa uses deplatforming to silence people they disagree with. Antifa has deemed themselves to know best about who can say what. Uh, would that not be a fascist tactic? Disagreement is treason. I know that you are a major free speech advocate as am I and Antifa is anything but pro for uh, but pro-free speech. So I found it very strange that you glossed over that. It also seemed like you didn't really make a distinction between the original Antifa fighting fascist Italy in the 30s and Antifa being violent in America in 2021, which are two extremely different things. Sorry for the long email. Haha, ha, JK, gosh dang. Sincerely, your loyal spaces are Erica Stork. Erica, uh, like James, you are correct on a lot of things you're saying here. I also did not think of the anti-free speech angle. There was a lot to contemplate. I missed that. I think honestly... I just kept thinking about the people who originally stood up to Mussolini and Hitler when I would think of Antifa. And, and it's hard and was hard for me mentally to totally denounce a group whose ideology begins with fighting those assholes. So going hard on them made me feel like I was being a neo-Nazi or something. Uh, but that's absurd because, you know, the group now and the group then are not the same groups. Uh, and I do see that more and more now. And again, thank you for pointing out a different perspective and, you know, and uh, pointing out things that I for sure missed. Uh, another thought that I did not bring up now, coming in from another anonymous sucker who writes, Hey, Master Sucker, quick question for you. During the whole storm the Capitol situation with QAnon, I had a thought. While I disagree with QAnon in that event, isn't it better to, when mad at the government, to riot and protest government buildings instead of small businesses like Antifa? I don't think they should have been so violent, but in my opinion, if your problem is with the government, is it better to protest at a government building instead of at your local Starbucks? Would love to hear your thoughts. Hail Nimrod, anonymous space lizard. Uh, again, this is a great point. You know, uh, 
what does smashing up small businesses prove? Nothing. It discredits your movement. If you are super angry at the government, I mean, yeah, there's going to be consequences depending on how far you take it. It does make more sense to bring the fight to the government, not to random small businesses. Uh, I, th I think I, I hesitated here, uh, you know, I, again, with some of these things because I just got hung up on, yeah, but I can't prove who Antifa is, why I didn't go harder into the looting. Because, you know, we'll just never know exactly and just, you know, QAnon did leave a more identifiable, easily identifiable online trail. But there was, it's not like there was no trail for Antifa and I should have dug deeper. Okay. Now an entirely different detail. I left that out of the QAnon Antifa suck that I should, shouldn't have. Uh, a very positive one uh, brought up by super sucker Terrell Swanson. I love this. Terrell writes, good evening, suck master Cummins. Excuse me. I'm writing to you from the toilet. Okay. Uh, to let you know, I just listened to the suck on QAnon Antifa and the January 6th riot. I would give the entire thing three to five stars, except there's one thing I would change. At some point you mentioned Eugene Goodman but not really anything that he did or what makes him a gosh darn hero, excuse my language. The way you brought up his name made it seem like you wanted to tell his acts of bravery, but edited it out because while incredible, it didn't fit with the rest of the story. Eugene Goodman was one of the few Capitol police officers on duty on January 6th, the day of insanity. He's also black, which is important for the story. As the writers, which possibly included your dad, you know where he was that day, nice, uh, surged into the building toward the Senate chamber. They went up a set of stairs and reached a landing where they could turn right and go directly to the chamber without anybody in their way. That's where Eugene Goodman comes in. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, Goodman comes in. He realized that the writers were probably either A, really stupid, or B, racist, or C, all of the above. So he slung his enormous and dense uranium balls over his shoulder and uh, met them at the landing. To make sure he had their attention, he shoved the guy at the forefront of the mob, then turned and ran away with the crowd following him in the direction away from the Senate. Every so often while running away, he stopped and turned to face them again, knowing that if they wanted to, they could easily overpower and kill him. He kept running, slowly led them away from the Senate towards another group of officers, therefore buying time for the evacuation of the Senate chamber, which without that day could have been so much worse. Because of his quick thinking and bravery, he was almost immediately promoted to deputy sergeant at arms of the United States Senate, was given the honor of escorting uh, Kamala Harris during the inauguration, and he was hailed as a hero across the internet. I know you probably read all about this while doing your search, uh, research, but just in case, I just want to give him all the recognition he deserves for truly being a good man. Thanks for reading. Hail Nimrod. And I still want that Bobby Willie song to be released as a single. <laughs> My voice is not nearly strong enough for Bobby Willie right now. Uh, please, I'm begging you. Also, I refuse to apologize for the length of this email. I know you're immune to eye strain with your Felix Gray blue light filtering glasses that filter more blue light than <laughs> any other brand anyway. Uh, thank you, Terrell. <laughs> Uh, yes, I should have highlighted Officer Goodman, uh, but didn't because the episode was already getting really long. I was trying to focus as much as possible. So much to cover. Uh, he was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal in uh, fe February for his bravery. Yeah, brave, brave man who risked his life to do his job that day. How many of us would have been brave enough to do the same? Dude stayed calm and collected in a real crazy, stressful situation. Hail Eugene Goodman. Thank you, Terrell. Uh, next to last update now, a counterpoint to a different suck. Savvy Sack Mitch Palmer writes, what's up, Danny boy? I know in a few podcasts, you mentioned the legalization of prostitution. I was just wondering if you knew about an organization called Operation Underground Railroad. You can Google them. They have a website. Done. Uh, did that. Yep. Uh, children are often hidden within the sex business and the legalization of prostitution would help child trafficking. I'm all for escorts and adults doing whatever, but doing some research makes you think, is it worth it? Uh, just something else you may consider doing a podcast on. The guy who runs Operation Underground Railroad has some interesting interviews and stories. Love your show. I hope to see you live someday whenever the COVID-19 shit ends. Peace, Mitch P. Well, thank you, Mitch. Uh, I was not familiar with that operation, but I am now. Appreciate that. Yeah, looking into it. I mean, yes, you, if you find some stuff like uh, 
legalized prostitution in Nevada right now, for example, has led for sure to some pimps hiding underage prostitutes because the pimps have supplied fake IDs. Are they doing that more than in states with illegal prostitution? It's very hard to say because we don't have the numbers, the true numbers in the states where it's illegal because it's more underground. I think if it were legal, this could be fixed, this problem by more supervision. Uh, if we if we legalize vice, including prostitution, then I think that has to come with some serious governmental oversight and harsh penalties for those who bend the rules and do shit like supply underage girls with fake IDs. And no matter what we do, thanks to people like Daniel Perez uh, in the world, there's always going to be victims, no matter what's legal and what's not. I just think legalization will lead to less victims overall because it will take, you know, more dark shit out of the shadows and make it easier for law enforcement to investigate it and to supervise. Great topic suggestion I need to research further. So thank you for sending that my way. And now we're going to end on some laughs. Instead of ending on me missing something, Cummins Law victim Chris Call writes, Master Sucker, quick one for you. One of my favorite listener updates is when we write in to share the embarrassing moments caused by unexpectedly sharing our private suck moments out of context with others. You read them, we all giggle, and I think to myself, I don't know how that happens to people. Foreshadowing. Last week, I rented a truck to bring some stuff to the dump. I picked it up. Notice when, it's, when I started it, the radio was totally unresponsive for about a minute for whatever reason. Can't turn it off. Can't turn it down. Can't pause it. Truck don't care. <laughs> I got rid of the junk, returned the truck, and while the guy was looking it over, he had me turn it on to check the lights. He was standing right outside when suddenly from the speakers, I hear your voice. Oh no, it's happening to me. We awkwardly, conti- awkwardly continue to check the truck while I frantically begged the truck to listen to the dial and turn down the podcast which was at the time very loudly sharing helpful information about stopping the scourge of dad crimes that this planet faces. Specifically, describing how dads struggle to find internet porn. <laughs> Who's your dad talking to online? What's he jerking off to? Do you know when and where your dad is jerking off? It can happen to anyone. Love the suck. Keep doing what you do. Keep sharing with us. Well, thank you, Chris. <laughs> I gave me a good laugh when I read that. I needed that. And I needed all those corrections. I really do appreciate it. It'd be easy just to not do that. I feel like so many people do that. That's how, you, that's how you become like a, a, a weird podcasty cult guy. <laughs> just everyone just fucking agrees with you. Keep them coming, right? Uh, let's all learn together. This podcast would fucking suck in all the wrong ways. If the cult of the curious didn't call me out on some shit, help steer the ship. So thank you. And uh, I hope you enjoyed today despite the voice. Let's get out of these updates. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thank you for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Mates X. Please do not tell anyone you're controlled by three evil angels or that you can't rape anyone because your dick is scarred. That's it's fucking crazy. Do something sane and just keep on sucking. Hey, Joe. That got me thinking, like, listening to that, like... Okay. Okay. okay now, now, is that a scar... Cause I think that, or is that a vein, or is that my whole wiener? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's funny. I, uh, that's pretty high up. The scar? Okay. Yeah. No, no. Sorry. Those is are. That a, those is that a are, circumcision? That's a problem when you came out. But below that, like if you, oh, you pick it up, pick my belly it up. button. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not the. No, no. Pick, pick the my wiener. Pick the wiener up. Okay, okay, okay. I just want to see your balls. Okay. Put your wiener back down. Okay. Um. Uh, yeah, that's a scar. Did you have a Prince Albert? Uh, I used to. Okay. In well, college. Problem solved. Problem solved. Ha <laughs> My wiener's fine. I don't, I don't have a scarpine or nothing. <laughs> Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot 
for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.